Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and this is episode 190 of the Astrology Podcast. Joining me today is Lisa Scheim, and we're going to be talking about electional astrology in this episode. Uh, hey, Lisa, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chris. Of course. All right. So we got up very early this morning to get a, a good electional chart for this episode. Uh, today is Wednesday, January 16th, 2019, starting at exactly 9.29 a.m., uh, and I'll show the electional chart for this episode later. Uh, but yeah, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, of course. All right, so we have a jam-packed episode. Uh, as usual, what's my usual line? It's like for more information about how to, how to support the production of future episodes of the Astrology Podcast by becoming a patron and getting access to some great subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes, higher quality recordings, and more, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. All right, with that out of the way, uh, let's jump right into it. So our topic today is electional astrology. Um, both of us have been doing electional astrology for quite a while. For a while, we actually wrote a column for the Mountain Astrologer magazine where we highlighted uh, four auspicious electional charts each month. Uh, I was doing that from 2012, I think, forward. And then eventually we transitioned into doing that as a monthly podcast for patrons and subscribers of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon. So each month we pick out four auspicious electional charts to highlight to give people something to work with for the month ahead. But we've never really done like I've never really done a full episode on electional astrology, I think. Right. So there's a lot of people who are constantly asking us questions like how to use our electional charts, what our approach to electional astrology is, and different things like that. So um, I had been for a long time. It's like I have a lecture on this, I have a course on this, I still teach lecture on this sometimes on the lecture circuit. So I'd been putting off doing a full episode on it for a long time, but I feel like it's been long enough and it's time to to do a discussion on it. So we're going to do a full sort of overview of electional astrology today as like an intro to electional astrology episode, talk about our approach, talk about the philosophy and some of the other little details underlying it. And we're also going to do a little bit of a Q&A where we got some questions from listeners through Twitter that we're going to answer as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So where should we start? Um, well, I think a lot of people just from the top um, want to know what is electional astrology. I think there's some confusion amongst people who don't already use it. Um, so we should probably start just from the very basics. Okay. So um, the very basics, the top, where I, when I always introduce this, um, one of the things I say is a electional astrology is one of four, there's traditionally four major branches of Western astrology. So the first branch is mundane astrology, which is applying astrology to groups of people like cities and nations, as well as natural phenomenon like weather and earthquakes. Um, there's natal astrology, which is when you cast a chart for the birth of an individual under the premise that the alignment of the planets at the moment that a person was born will have something to say about their character as well as their future. There's um, electional slash inceptional astrology. It's, it's sometimes referred to either way as electional or inceptional where you cast a chart for the birth of an event or a venture or an undertaking under the premise that the chart will both describe the nature of the event as well as what will happen in its future. And then finally, the fourth branch is horary astrology, where you cast a chart for the moment of a question under the premise that the chart will, will describe something about the nature of the question as well as its outcome. So um, with electional astrology, I think the biggest philosophical point that we need to dwell on first is this concept that Jeffrey Cornelius referred to as the doctrine of origin. And he, he was actually rejecting the concept of the doctrine of origin, I think, when he used it in the moment of astrology. But I think it's a great descriptor for 
the underlying premise that that underlies this branch of astrology and it's the premise that the the quality or the future of anything can be determined by looking at an astrological chart which represents the alignment of the planets at the moment that it began so the basic premise underlying electional astrology is it's not just people that have birth charts but also events and ventures or anything that has a definite beginning in time has a birth chart as well right yeah and i think you know some listeners may already be familiar with that idea but for those who aren't i think it's really exciting realization you know when you first come across this that everything can have a chart not just people cuz people are used to you know talking about someone's birth chart but like a building can have a birth chart or a company can have a birth chart or things like that right or like a country like mm-hmm. the inception chart or the in the beginning chart for a country is a common one mm-hmm. uh, a marriage mm-hmm. is a common one or a relationship between two people like a first meeting chart right so basically anything that has a definite um, beginning has a chart or can have a chart um, and that's kind of the basis of this and that that's why this branch was originally referred to in the Greek tradition, it was referred to as Katarkic astrology. And Katarke just means a beginning, an inception, or a commencement. So it's the astrology of inceptions or beginnings or commencements, because you're casting charts for the beginning of whatever has has started at some specific moment in time under the premise that the chart will reflect the future of what was initiated. So if you can cast a chart for the beginning of something, you can actually know its outcome. Right. So that leads to um, an application of inceptional astrology, which is what where inceptional astrology has usually come to be known more commonly as electional astrology today. And this term um, wasn't used originally, it seems, in the Greek text, but eventually it started to be used more commonly in the medieval and Renaissance texts, where they would take this concept of inceptional astrology and they would apply it, apply it proactively, where if you've already established the premise that a chart cast for the moment that something begins will indicate its future or its outcome, then it's just one step to say, well, what if I picked you know, one date to do something rather than another? And if I did that, could I somehow control or influence the outcome in a way that's more desirable or more optimal for what I'm trying to accomplish? And this is where electional astrology comes in, is it's the proactive use of astrology to pick a specific inception chart that will um, more better reflect the outcome that the person initiating the action wants to accomplish. So uh, another way to frame that, what's another way to frame that? Right. So an inception tends to be just um, the beginning of something when it wasn't proactively chosen, whereas um, an election is just the same thing. It's the start of when something began, but it was deliberately chosen. Right. So most of the time it's just referred to as electional astrology because for all intents and purposes, most people are usually using this branch to try to control the outcome of something or try to basically pick another way you could frame it is like an auspicious is what we usually term a moment to begin something or a lucky moment to begin something so that you can have a more favorable outcome. Uh, But you can also, um, sometimes the term inceptional astrology is still used to refer to an event that has already occurred in the past where you just want to cast a chart to look at what that um, chart looks like and get more information about the future of that thing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a retroactive application of the same principles where you're not trying to like 
pick out a specific moment, but you're trying to investigate one that's already occurred. Right. So you're looking at the beginning chart either way. It's just a matter of whether it was deliberately chosen or whether it just happened then. Yeah. And the rules, the interpretive rules are all basically the same, but we're going to be focusing on electional astrology here today in order to try to teach you how to pick out the best charts possible, because usually that's what we do each month in the Auspicious Elections podcast is we go through and we find the best standalone electional charts that we can find over the course of the next month. And we actually just did a yearly report where we did the same thing for the next 12 months, which we just released through the podcast website. Um, but we want to explain some of the rules underlying that to show you what our approach is and what the conceptual and technical uh, principles are underlying electional astrology so you can actually do it yourself and start to pick out your own elections um, using those same rules. All right. Um, so, history of electional astrology. So, electional astrology probably originated in Mesopotamia, at least as far as the Western astrological tradition goes. Um, there's other cultures, like in India, where they also had some different forms of electional astrology. Because, you know, once you've developed the premise of astrology that there's a correlation between celestial movements and earthly events, and that for some reason um, the future sometimes seems to be indicated or determined based on the alignment of the planets when something began, it's just one step to go from there to then trying to deliberately start things under a, a more auspicious set of celestial alignments versus seeing another day where it might be more inauspicious and trying to avoid that. And because that principle is so straightforward or rudimentary, it's kind of hard to narrow down the origins of electional astrology to some extent just because it's something that would have come naturally to most cultures that developed any form of astrology. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that makes sense. As far as the, the written textual tradition, um, the earliest complete work on electional astrology that survives and the most influential work is book five of the poem of Dorotheus of Sidon who wrote his text somewhere around the late 1st century CE. So somewhere around the year, let's say 75 CE, in book five of Dorotheus, he wrote five books, and in book five it deals entirely with inceptional and electional astrology. Um, so he gives you different instructions for interpreting a chart for either um, if something has already taken place and you want to cast a chart to understand what its future or what its outcome will be, or if um, you want to pick an auspicious date to launch something or start something, then he gives you rules for doing the same thing. So that book was hugely influential. It influenced most later medieval and Renaissance traditions of electional astrology, and you'll see echoes of Dorotheus throughout the entire subsequent electional tradition. Uh, we recently, of course, on one of the recent episodes of the podcast, I think only a year or two ago, I interviewed Ben Dykes because he recently retranslated Dorotheus. So you can actually get uh, a translation of Dorotheus by Ben, so Dorotheus of Sidon Carmen Astrologicum. Um, and book five of this has the earliest rules on electional astrology and, and most of the rules that influence the later tradition. So um, let's see, other history stuff. There's some earlier fragments by Petasiris. So, so Dorotheus himself said that he claimed to be drawing on the earlier Mesopotamian and Egyptian astrological traditions and synthesizing them. So even though Dorotheus is one of our earliest sources, he's probably not the earliest source for electional rules. There's some electional rules that I use that are derived from fragments attributed to Petasiris, who is one of the earliest 
um, writers on Hellenistic astrology from probably somewhere around the year 100 BCE. Um, let's see, other things. And then eventually, and the only other historical thing is that horary astrology probably eventually developed out of electional astrology. And there's good evidence for that because we have a lot of rules for electional astrology in the Hellenistic tradition, but we don't have a lot of rules for horary astrology until the medieval tradition. And an argument that I made in a paper of mine years ago is that they seem to have developed the concept of like consultation charts where you cast a chart for the, the inception or the beginning of a consultation between an astrologer and a client as a kind of electional or inceptional chart. And it was through doing that that eventually they developed the concept of just casting a chart for when a client asks you a question and trying to determine the outcome of the question based on that. So you can kind of see the natural development of horary astrology if you understand it in that context. Uh, but yeah, electional astrology became very popular in the subsequent traditions uh, in the medieval and renaissance periods. All right, so um, next question, what kind of things can you elect using electional astrology? I mean, in theory, you could elect anything. Um, I remember uh, reading Stephen Forrest writing sometime that in theory, you could um, elect brushing your teeth, but it would be pretty silly. But you know, in theory, you could have a chart for anything. It's just that most of the time, people only bother to take the time to figure out a good electional chart for things that are more important. So it's usually applied to things like weddings, business incorporations, um, signing a contract, listing a house for sale. So kind of like higher tier priority things. Yeah. I mean, major events in your life and major ventures or undertakings that you want to be successful and especially that you're like willing to go out of your way to start it on one date rather than another, mm-hmm. or in some instances at, at one, you know, relatively not super convenient time right, right. or date compared to another, just for the sake of getting a more auspicious astrological chart. Right. So, and this can have you doing weird things like we're doing this morning, like waking up super early. Right. Uh, it can have you. This is in the 1980s. That was astrologers actually picked up on in the astrological community that Ronald Reagan was using an astrologer because he would keep doing important things at like weird hours, like holding a press conference or launching um, presidential campaigns and things like that at really weird late hours, which didn't make sense to any of the press, but astrologers started to realize they're using electional astrology because even though the time isn't practically convenient and is like a you know almost inappropriate time to do that, the astrological chart for that moment is actually really good, so they must be going out of their way to do that. And sometimes that's how you can tell when somebody's using electional astrology. Right. Yeah. So it has to be something that you're, like you said, willing to bother to go out of your way to do, and you wouldn't do that with everything, or rather you shouldn't do it with everything because you will become sort of neurotic if you elect everything. But Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a line there that we've explored and flirted with in terms of (laughs) Uh, when is it appropriate versus when does it become almost like neurotic? And I think that's something that different astrologers, probably with astrology in general, it's probably mm-hmm. just a phenomenon of astrology in general that different astrologers go through phases with and play with and eventually hopefully come to a more like healthy sort of middle ground between the two extremes of like trying to use astrology to do everything versus just using it occasionally to do some important things. Right. And people are often surprised. Um, I've mentioned to one or two people that I don't always use all of the elections that I find um, because I only bother to go out of my way to do it if it's actually something important enough, enough to. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it really varies because us we're because we know of the charts, and because we have like solar fire where we can throw up, like even right now for the people watching the video, I'll show you the chart for uh, right now. It's like we have the chart for right now, like running in the background using the clock feature on Solar Fire, which is super, super useful. Mm -hmm. Well, the clock feature and the animate feature, where you can move the chart forward um, in different increments, like hours or days or months. Um, as a result of that, we often know like what the current rising sign is and what the current chart looks like. Right. So that will sometimes influence us in terms of like starting something new or not starting something new at that time. Just because we're sort of vaguely aware of it most most of the time at this point, right? So there's a sort of I don't know weird middle ground there where sometimes we are trying to pay attention to it and deliberately aim for bigger charts, and other times we're not. But there's a it sort of varies. No, for sure. I mean, and once you know the rules for doing full out elections, you can use those same principles on a sort of daily basis, um, even if you're not making full electional charts just to know when are better or worse times during that day to do stuff like um, you know, emailing important emails or things like that. Right. Yeah. So it varies. I mean, you could use it for a lot of things and oftentimes we do, um, but there's definitely varying levels of importance of both like a super amazing election, like this is the best election of the entire year and doing something monumental versus mm -hmm. A smaller thing for just like sending a semi-important email or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, are there things connected with that that we should mention? Mm. I feel like there are, but I don't know if it's time to get into that stuff. Oh, what kind of things? Just, um, well, I guess we'll get into it a little bit. We're going to talk about some different things that you could write do an election for. So maybe mm -hmm. we'll save that. Yeah. So um, I did want to mention a few famous instances of electional astrology just to round out the like historical component of this. Um, just like three notable electional charts down through history, because once electional astrology was developed um, in the Hellenistic tradition, especially, it was used and became used for a number of major things. And historically, that's one of the things that astrologers really end up getting involved in when it comes to like powerful people. They will. And sometimes end up consulting astrologers for things like that, like when to start a new monumental venture in order to ensure its success. So, famous example of that is the founding of Baghdad in the year 762. Uh, was founded the the ruler at the time, the ruler of the Islamic Empire, got together a group of astrologers and said, "I'm going to move the capital to this this new city that's going to be called." It ended up being called Baghdad. I don't know if you heard of it. <laughs> Once or twice. <laughs> Once or twice. Uh, and um, they picked out a, the best electional chart. We don't know what time frame they had to work with, like if they had a month to work with, or they had like a few months or a few years or what, but they ended up picking an, an auspicious electional chart for the founding of that city, uh, which is still around and is still significant to this day. At, at the time, their electional chart ended up working out well because it became the center of the Islamic empire and the center of a major translation movement for astrological texts, and there was a sort of renaissance of astrology for at least a century there. Um, other famous examples of elections are John Dee, the astrologer John Dee elected the coronation chart for Queen Elizabeth I, famous electional chart. And then more recently in modern times, um, as I already mentioned, Ronald Reagan's astrologer Joan Quigley used electional astrology many, many different times to time 
different things that he did during the course of especially his presidency. So for example, um, she elected the chart for the launch of Reagan's re-election campaign in 1984, which was successful. She elected the electional chart for his second inauguration, which she wasn't able to change a lot. Like She couldn't change the date and she could hardly change the time, but she did alter the time a little bit. And I think she ended up delaying it in order to move the the angles of like the midheaven and the ascendant just a tiny bit. Uh, she elected a chart for the signing of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in 1987. So she elected a major treaty between two countries. And I'm giving these examples because they also give you some idea to the different applications of electional astrology and different things you can apply it to. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is obviously on a super major level, but sort of archetypally, it gives you some idea of different things that you could set as the beginning of something. Right. So in this case, like a contract, for example, mm-hmm. between two countries, a treaty. Um, she advised Reagan to keep quiet for an extended period during the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, let's see. She elected the chart for Nancy's mastectomy surgery in 1987. So that's a medical election, which mm-hmm. is also a relatively common type of election. She elected the time for the announcement of Anthony Kennedy's Supreme Court nomination to ensure that it would work out, which it did, of course. And then finally, she also elected the 1980 debate between Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. And this was an interesting one because she talks about in her book, Joan Quigley does, how she actually used electional astrology against Carter in this instance because instead of trying to focus on getting a chart that was good for Reagan, she focused on getting a chart that was actually bad for Carter, or at least that was her her thinking going into it, which raises an interesting point, which is that elections are not always you know, with electional astrology, we're usually trying to find like the best chart to in- ensure a positive outcome. But sometimes there's a ways to use electional astrology where, like, what if you wanted something to fail, or you wanted to? What if the outcome that you desired was that something, you know, didn't take off, or something like that? There would be ways to elect that as well. And even though that's not really what we're going to focus on for the most part, most of these rules could still be applied in that way, so that you understand that electional astrology or inceptional astrology is not just positive things, but it's really just that premise that if you know the starting point, then you can also know the ending point or the outcome. Sure. And, you know, of course, most of the time when people ask for an election, they are looking for something to go well. But the general premise is just if you know all of the principles, you can kind of see how the chart will go. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So um, one of the questions that people often have, especially newer people, is what do you do at the elected time? Like, Let's say you've got an astrologer and they've given you an electional chart to use for starting your new venture or undertaking, or you've picked one up out yourself. What do you do once you get to that, that time? Right. So typically, it's the most important symbolic act that begins whatever the venture is that you're starting. And so you have to kind of think about what that is for your specific case. Mm-hmm. So for instance, like if you're writing a book or an article, you might, um, and you're trying to do an election for the actual writing as opposed to later submitting it, um, you might say, open a new document, start writing a little bit of it and save the document. That would be like one in- inception, for instance. Um, another might be if you're opening a business, Um, How do you know when a business is open? Well, the door, if it's a physical business, the door opens and it's open for business for the very first time. And so those are kind of a couple instances of that you have to think about case by case in terms of what starts your your venture symbolically. 
Right. And that's the most important thing for any electional chart is you need to figure out what the most important symbolic beginning is. You need to establish if there's just one beginning or if it has a few different possible beginnings because not all things just begin at once. Sometimes there's like a series of events that take place and sometimes they're relatively close together and other times they're kind of spread out. Mm -hmm. So identifying that is is super important. One of the tricks that I use that's really useful to keep in mind when you're trying to figure out what the most symbolically important beginning is, is that you can kind of liken inceptional beginnings or electional beginnings to the issue in natal astrology that you run into, which is conception versus birth. Where conception, for for example, for Claudius Ptolemy in the second century, the way that he explains this is he says that conception is like the inception or the beginning, the katarche of the physical body, but the actual birth of the individual is the actual inception or beginning of their life when they emerge from the mother as like a separate being uh, that's separate from the mother's body and they actually begin their life. That's actually the moment of the birth chart because that's the moment of the inception of the life as a whole rather than just their their physical or material body. Right. And that kind of relates to the issue of sometimes the more, most important symbolic moment can be when you finalize the beginning of something, which sounds kind of like an odd turn of phrase. But for instance, this comes up a lot with weddings, for instance. Um, so I, I think both you and I kind of consider the moments where they say, I do, and are pronounced married, um, the beginning of the wedding, or sorry, the beginning of the marriage, because prior to that time, they're not really married yet, even though the ceremony has started, for instance. Yeah, like we consider that to be the most symbolically significant moment in terms of the marriage between those two individuals, even though technically there's also like signing the marriage certificate, mm -hmm. and even though that usually happens closely afterwards and we'll try to use roughly the same electional chart or at least as close to it as possible if we can to get both of those things like saying I do like completing the vows and completing the ceremony and also signing the marriage um, certificate roughly with the same rising sign of the same electional chart the one that we'll focus on more is the one that's more symbolically significant which is the moment that the two of them say I do mm-hmm Right. And I always like to joke, and but it's serious too, that, you know, if one of them were to walk off in the middle of the ceremony before that moment, they would not be considered married. No one would con be considering them married because they hadn't actually vowed to be married yet. Right. And that's a good conception versus birth one as well, because that's like the beginning of the marriage and of their like legal union right. versus the conception of the marriage would be, you know, the first when they first got together as a couple or their first meeting chart or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And like with weddings too, you know, you can try like anything that has multiple moments that might be important, like you said, the marriage certificate, or perhaps even the beginning of the ceremony. I think that's less important to the marriage itself, but more to the event of the wedding, mm -hmm. you know? And so if you can, sometimes you can, um, if you have a few moments that are somewhat important, you can try to get them all under the same rising sign at least. Um, yeah, so I at least try to couple the the vows and the marriage um, sign the marriage certificate signing for sure, and then also the beginning of the ceremony if you can. Right. Um, or other instances, like if there's a series of a bunch of different things, like I know in the process of writing my book and publishing my book, there was a bunch of different significant moments that were spread out. 
and I ended up electing different charts during different months or different years that I ended up using for different phases of that process. Right. So that's another thing you can do sometimes if you don't have a single beginning is you can try to get different electional charts during your um, your window of opportunity or your span of when you're going to be starting major things and setting each of those major turning points for a significant election. Right. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's some that are more clear cut than others. So like, I know that we often elect leaving for trips and we've found that when you leave the house um, is actually the most symbolically important moment because that's the in- inception of the journey, even though you could say when your plane takes off or whatever. Right. And, and shout out to my friend Scott Silverman from Kepler College who first told me about that. His thing was always like the moment that he locked the door and like turned the key to lock the door and then departed from his house for the final time is like the most symbolically significant moment for for beginning his journey. And I've always found that it worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm, definitely. I've been tracking those for a while now. It seems like they work really well. Yeah. Well, and that's hilarious because we've had like bad trips to like astrology conferences and we've had like really good ones. And um, I think you, some of the bad ones have definitely encouraged us to like pay more attention to the electional chart mm-hmm. than we otherwise were up to that point because we were sort of like, yeah, if we can get it, but we don't want to do an early flight or, right. you know, whatever. We want to get there on this day, which is going to be more convenient versus like flying in a day early or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then. How did that go? Yeah. Well, no, I think we both really value the electional chart at this point for leaving for trips. Yeah. And like neither of us are morning people. And I know for me at least, like I will just get up no matter what, even like to make it a better chart for a trip. Um, and that's kind of saying something if you know me at all, because I'm quite the late night person. But <laughs> I mean, just because we we paid attention even the times when it wasn't a great chart and it just the chart both matched what and described how the trip ended up going um in not great ways in mm-hmm. the instances where we weren't like trying very hard for like a good departure chart. Right. And this is actually a really great um tip if you haven't been exploring elections yet. So even if you're not up to electing your trips yet or other things that you do, just write down the time that you leave for a trip or write down the time you start something, and then you can watch the chart and learn from their electional rules to see how it goes. Yeah, just start noting the time that all major, you know, medium or even like minor events happen in your life. And you'll start to that. That'll be good groundwork. That'll be a good groundwork to start learning electional astrology by just paying attention to how things go, based on the starting point for the chart for when they began. Like even things like meeting a new person and like noting the day and time that you met that person, or starting a new job. um, Mm -hmm. You know, lots of different things. Right. And negative examples can actually be even more. Good learning than positive ones. I feel like very spurred on by my ne- negative examples. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you start something and you see like Mars like rising over the horizon on the ascendant in a day chart or something like that, mm-hmm. or let's say there's like a Mars, Pluto, Saturn, Uranus, <laughs> Sedna conjunction or something like that. Right. Uh, and that might be something to pay attention to. Right. Yeah, and just watch later and then it will it will spur you to do elections, I think. <laughs> right. All right. So, um I think we've established that pretty well, right? Any other mm-hmm. points we want to touch on there before we move on? Um no. I mean, basically it's only really large scale things I think that require more than one super symbolic moment. Like I'm I'm thinking of say 
you know, the grand opening of a business that also required building from the ground up. Like there could be a moment where you start the construction. There can also be a moment of the grand opening of the business itself. Yeah. And business ones are tricky because there's sometimes debate about that. Like what is the first official chart that you should use yeah. for a business? Is it like when they first open their doors? When it, is it when they get their first customer? Is it mm -hmm. when they make their first sale right. and like have their first dollar? And it's like some businesses like put their first dollar up on the wall that was their first transaction. Um, for corporations, um, I know a lot of business astrologers or financial astrologers will use the inception chart for the um, you the know the corporation. Business. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So the the actual like incorporation chart, since every business is incorporated as like a legal entity at some point in time. Right. Um, I know the incorporation chart. For example, for Kepler College, there was like a bunch of different possible charts, and the um, incorporation chart for that. School always seemed to be the one that matched the best from what I could tell. So that always pushed me towards incorporation charts, oftentimes when it came to, to big like businesses and stuff. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, yeah. So that's big things, but you can also use it for small things. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, we've seen it even work out for things like sending an important email and mm -hmm. like the type of response that you get back. Because what's weird is just that. There's things that happen in a person's life and in your day-to-day -day life where you know that you know you could have done the same exact thing one day and the way it was received by that person would be like one way versus you could have done the same exact thing another day and just because of chance and just because of circumstances it could be received a totally different day. And sometimes that's what's going on with electional astrology. It's not that the chart is or the planets are like causing the outcome to happen in some certain specific way, but it's just the way that um, the, the chips fall and the way that things happen by chance sometimes ends up lining up in different ways depending on when you initiate the action. And that's there's there's something about that 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 astrology or that electional astrology is really tied into in terms of the matrix of like chance. And causes and outcomes that's not really fully clear, but that's really what this whole thing is tied into in some some weird way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. And you can think, for instance, even if you didn't know much astrology or any astrology, that there's sort of a common sense way of thinking about like most people realize that if you try to have a conversation with someone or send an email or something um, at one time versus another, the person just might be in a different mood at different times or things like that. Yeah, it's like one day the person like just um, found out that they're getting married or something and they're having a great day or the other day they just got in a car accident or they just got in a fight with their spouse and they're in a bad mood. And, um, and so they're like responding to you in a way that's totally different just based on their own circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of like that, although like a little more elaborate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. So moving on. So that's the basic, I think, conceptual framework. I think we've got a good foundation to start with. Mm -hmm. um, let's move into talking about some technical things about electional charts. And there's different approaches to electional astrology, um, just like there's different approaches to astrology in general or natal astrology or what have you. Broadly speaking, there's kind of two approaches to elections that you can take. One of them is trying to make the electional chart itself as positive as possible uh, in an overall sense, just based on some fundamental astrological rules that are largely the same or are largely interchangeable in the other branches of astrology, like natal astrology and horary astrology, where some of the fundamental rules are used across all three branches. 
and are very familiar if you understand the basics of traditional Western astrology. So that's one approach. It's just make a good chart that looks auspicious from the standpoint of the basic rules of Western astrology, and that's a lot of what we're going to focus on today. Rule number two, or approach number two, I should say, not rule yeah. number two. The other approach is to make an electional chart that matches or looks like the thing that you're trying to initiate. And that's kind of a, a different approach. And sometimes there can be overlap, or sometimes you can do both approaches at the same time, but that's not always possible. So the the second approach is more like creating a chart that just sort of looks like the thing that you're trying to initiate at that time so that it sort of mimics or imitates it in some way. Right. Yeah. And it's not completely hard and fast, but generally speaking, um, that second approach has been used more in modern astrology, kind of trying to do electional from the standpoint standpoint of modern astrology. Yeah, where things are more more qualitative and modern astrology has largely shed a lot of the rules about what's a positive indication or versus a negative indication because they've tried to recontextualize everything as being, you know, there's different ways that things manifest and everything's ultimately positive and nothing's ultimately negative or something like that. And while there's some truth to that, um, it's really important. This is where traditional astrology is much more useful for electional astrology. And this is why there's not a lot of books in modern astrology for electional astrology. And it's because in order to do electional astrology significantly or, or successfully, you have to be able to identify what would be a more optimal placement versus a less optimal placement for something, right. or what would be an auspicious placement or an auspicious chart, let's say overall, or an auspicious placement within a chart versus what would be an inauspicious placement. So you have to be able to make distinctions like good and bad, positive, negative, constructive, destructive, intellectual astrology in order for it to work for the most part. Right, exactly. And so this is one of the areas of astrology where you definitely want to be making value judgments because it's not about a value judgment about a person or anything like that. Right. You just, you know, if if anything's good or bad, then there's kind of almost no point in electing anything. Um, and so, but we see, in fact, if you start watching charts, you see that the inception of something does um, look like the outcome. And so, um, yeah, you want to make those value judgments and say, no, this these rules actually construct a chart that's quali like qualitatively better than this chart. And I want to start something that I want to go well under that chart versus the second one versus um, the other one is just more of like how something feels. So it's kind of an outgrowth of psychological astrology. Um, you know, so whether this matches like the feel of what you want, say like I want to fire sign something. Right. And while it's understandable that this gets more tricky when you apply this sort of thinking to natal astrology, where honestly, and that's part of the modern debate surrounding the revival of traditional astrologies, and, and you've heard this in different episodes I've done on the podcast before, like with Mark Jones and some of our debates, where when you start applying this thinking in the context of natal astrology, there's like debates about whether that's appropriate or not. Um, and you could make different arguments that are good either way in terms of people's experience of their lives and whether they're like objectively or subjectively more difficult if certain people have had more challenging lives and their charts have matched that versus other people have had easier lives or more fortunate lives or specifically in certain areas of their life. Um, so that gets a little tricky in the context of natal astrology, but the electional astrology is a little bit more straightforward. It's mm -hmm. like, was this trip successful? Um, did these two people have qualitatively like a good and long-lasting marriage? 
Um, was this business successful and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of obviously wiggle room there in terms of like what does it mean? What does success mean or success in different areas or maybe one part of this venture has been successful and another part has been not as successful and different things like that. But for the most part, it's like you need to make some of those cut and dry sort of black and white distinctions in order to do electional astrology um, for the most part. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I, I wanted to qualify, you know, when I was talking about that second approach with the feel of something, I, I have, especially as I've done this longer, I have come to not discount that it will in fact show the feel of something. But those aren't those are just not the major pieces to prioritize. Maybe you look at that like after a couple other factors. Yeah, I mean the ma major things to prioritize are just there are traditional rules in ancient pre-modern astrology for what will qualify as a more positive or constructive or successful placement versus ones that will indicate more challenges or hardships or difficulties. Exactly. And if you're trying to make, you know, shoot for something that's going to be more successful, more subjectively positive, uh, so on and so forth, you're going to want to go for the more positive traditional placements. Right. Yeah. All right. So um, some of the things that come with that. So with this approach, then we're largely going to be focusing on trying to optimize the good things in a, in a, in a chart and to sort of minimize the challenging things as much as possible. Um, but one of the things that you learn super quickly in electional astrology is that there's no such thing as a perfect chart. Definitely doesn't exist. Yeah. And is that I mean is that true or am I overstating that? No, point? that's definitely true. No, literally, <laughs> literally no perfect charts. <laughs> no perfect charts, and really a large part of the you can learn the basics of electional astrology really pretty quickly and pretty easily. I mean, we've got lectures on it that we sell on our website. We're going to be teaching you the basics of it today once we eventually get to the in what will be uh, as usual an extraordinarily long podcast. Um, you can learn the basic techniques of electional astrology relatively quickly. Uh, I also teach a course on it, uh, mm -hmm. so on and so <laughs> forth. Um, but the real trick for learning electional astrology and the thing that requires practice is that um, Electional astrology is the art of learning how to prioritize what is most important versus what is negotiable and versus what is just a complete deal breaker and figuring out how to prioritize those different levels of things, especially given the constraints of the time frame that you have to work with. That is where electional astrology gets really tricky and where even if you know the basic rules, it takes a lot of practice and a lot of repeated trial and error and sometimes failures uh, to gain enough experience to be able to successfully um, successfully prioritize things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know that was one of the questions that was written in um, to this episode from one of our listeners. And so I and I do think you answered it. You know that a lot of it is just practice and kind of tracking how things go and. You know, writing down the time that you started something and then tracking whether it's minor or major. Um, because I don't think you really get a sense of the scale of what's most, I mean, you can learn, of course, um, the step by step what's most important to prioritize. But in terms yeah, of. Yeah. And I mean, that's something I really focus on teaching, like in my course, for yeah. example, in the electional astrology course, is the priority of like what's most important versus what's less important. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, d- there is definitely like a hier- hierarchy of things to follow. Like a technical hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. And so if you follow those, then you should you should know more or less, you know. But I think still in terms of what's deal breakers, you do have to get a little bit of practice with it. Yeah. I mean, it just takes practice and experience and eventually you build up through that because you can learn something. And this is true with astrology, with natal astrology and whatever. You can learn something in a book. You can learn a rule in the book and you can have that in your head when you approach things. But the thing that's actually that sticks with you the most is the time that you started a trip when like Saturn was like right on the ascendant in a night chart and then you just had like a terrible time or that time when you got married and like Mars was like right on the midheaven in a day chart right. and uh, and you got divorced like a week later like <laughs> that's that stuff sticks with you in a way that's much more vivid and much more visceral as like a life experience that you will then pay attention to in future electional charts if you For do sure. another like shotgun wedding or or whatever yeah uh, and you don't put Mars on the midheaven or something like that right I have no shotgun wedding examples in my own life but I okay. I have still some you know bad bad inceptions that were very instructive yeah, yeah. I mean there's always there's always time there's always <laughs> okay yeah. for the sake of science sure um. Yeah, so you know that's one of those things, and that's one of the. Um, I was more resistant. This discussion has actually come up recently about like there was like some older astrologer that was criticizing younger astrologers and saying, and there's a lot of young astrologers that reacted to it, and that made me remember you know being in my early twenties and going to the first when I was president of the Association for Young Astrologers, and we printed up those shirts that had the quote on the back. Do you remember what the quote was? Um. I'm blanking for a second. It uh, was like it was like those. It was a quote from like a medieval oh, uh, aphorism. Yeah, like those whose minds are are more um, suited for foreknowledge. Uh-huh. Um, it will go better than those practicing the art the longest. Yeah, it was basically a smarmy <laughs> quote. <laughs> it was very snarky. That <laughs> uh, was saying like your age doesn't necessarily matter when it comes to your skill as an astrologer. That you could be studying it for like 60 years and supposedly have a lot of experience built up where but if you're just not very good at it or if you're not very perceptive to the types of things that astrology can show you then somebody that's just studying it for like a few years or for like 3 years or 2 years or 5 years or whatever could if they're really naturally adept at learning the type of things and paying attention to Astrology and and picking up on things that could you know be just as good as somebody who'd been doing it for sixty years, um, and I've seen instances of that. But and I think that's true. And there's some part of that ten years later now that I'm in my early to mid thirties, which is still true. And I'll still grant that to my twenty three year old self. However, I am starting to understand the benefit um, of age and experience because of the the phenomenon that we're talking about here where you just have more time to build up those visceral experiences and those empirical observations of when I did this, when the chart was this, it, the outcome was this. Mm-hmm. And when I did this event or when I did this electional chart for this client, the outcome was this. And just like learning those things empirically does give you a level of 
additional knowledge and wisdom that is unique and helpful and is something that can only come with with time. Definitely. So to balance out my like 30-year-old snarky self, that's the other <laughs> end of that, which I've mm -hmm. definitely learned over the course of the past decade. Yeah, for sure. You need the technical apparatus and that needs to be quality or else nothing else is going to be quality, but experience does add to that. Yeah, it definitely helps. Um, so, uh, but there's no perfect charts. I think that was where we were going with that yes. before I got on mm -hmm. a huge Little tangent. <laughs> sidetrack. Uh, but there's no perfect charts. Learning how to live with that and learning how to make the best out of what is available, that is the real art um, of electional astrology. And that's the biggest thing that you have to learn that takes a lot of practice mm -hmm. um, and a lot of trial and error. Definitely. And I think if you have an eye for um, technical distinctions on the one hand, it will make it easier for you to learn um, electional astrology, but it also conversely can make it hard for you to make those decisions about which ones to ultimately go with. They're like, oh, but this detail's good, but this detail's bad. And, you know, so you can see all of it, even the imperfections when you do choose the charts. Yeah. Learning how to synthesize those things is important. Learning how to like prioritize them. Learning how to be okay with the not perfect chart is mm -hmm. a tough, tough thing mm -hmm. because once you know all the different things you, you want to avoid, realizing that you have to have some of those in almost every chart you do, right. uh, that's one of the things that's really the most tricky is learning how to let go of that, learning how to be okay with certain things. Because one of the things is like there's no thing, one of the like life lessons or the broader implications of no the no perfect chart rule is just every person has some part of their life that goes well and they have some part of their life that doesn't go as well. Mm -hmm. there's, there's, good, there's just some area naturally in your life where things aren't going to go as well for you compared to other people. Mm -hmm. And that, that's going to vary in severity. Like mm -hmm. maybe it's just like a minor thing versus like a huge major life trauma that you experience in some area of your life compared to other people who don't experience that type of thing. Um, the same is true though in electional astrology. There's just some areas where you're going to have problems and there's some areas that are going to go better mm -hmm. uh, and you just have to sort of accept that uh, to whatever extent you can. Definitely. And I think it's about managing expectations, um, kind of worded differently, but the same thing. So both in yourself and if you're ever doing elections for other people, for friends or for clients or what have you, um, you know, everyone has to have the same general understanding that elections will not make things perfect. They will just hopefully make them better than they would be otherwise. Yeah, it's trying to give you an edge, mm -hmm. trying to give you a slight sometimes slight advantage, other times a more notable or significant advantage. But the point is just to, it's kind of like the idea of, you know, once you push something, once you set the ball rolling on something, it's going to follow that trajectory from its initial push. Um, but if you could like slightly alter almost like a bowling ball or something, like if you're throwing a bowling ball down a lane, if you could slightly alter the trajectory and even sometimes just a minor way at the start, sometimes by the time it hits its intended destination, the um, trajectory is, has that minor alteration in trajectory at the start has altered the long-term outcome so much that it has a much different result or much different outcome. Mm -hmm, for sure. I like that analogy. Electional astrology as bowling. Electional astrology <laughs> as bowling, the zen, the bowling zen of electional astrology. That should yes, be a lecture. that would be the title. Yeah. Okay. I'll work on that. Um, all right, so good preliminary stuff. We're still dealing with preliminaries at we this point. All right, let's keep, keep going. <laughs> yeah. All right, so my first thing 
that I always teach people at the start of any electional thing is not a technical thing, but is the first starting point that's actually technical that you don't usually think about, which is to clearly define your time frame. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is a starting point for everything is define what is the time frame that you have to look, with, look at uh, or work with because once you define your time frame, that's all that matters and all you should pay attention to is the dates and the charts that are available within that time frame and you have to, to ignore everything outside of it. Mm-hmm. So if you have to get married or if somebody, let's say you have a client that has to get married this summer between January, let's say between June 1st and August 22nd, mm-hmm. that is your available time frame and you have to look at charts only within that time frame. It doesn't matter that there's a really great alignment of like Jupiter and Venus and Neptune a century from now. <laughs> Um, you know, on January 22nd, 20, uh, 2132 or something like a century later, that doesn't matter because you'll be dead by then <laughs> right. and, you, and you can't use that electional chart. <laughs> yeah. You have to use the electional charts that are available to you. And that's part of the point that we were talking about earlier, which is just the art of learning how to, to use what's available. Right. And that's kind of an extreme example of like what's obviously not available. I mean, there can be a little wiggle room, like if there's like a great date, like two days outside of that, you know, be like, well, are you available then? Just double check, you know? Yeah. Well, but that's that's part of like establishing the time frame, though, because it's the same thing. You could bring it to a more reasonable one and say, I've got to get married this summer. And I'm like, and you look at it and they're like, well, there would be a great electional chart next summer. Mm But it's like people in life can't always wait, and you no, and, and you. It's not only can't, but on some level, like shouldn't wait, and you shouldn't put off your life. There's a, definitely a middle ground, and this goes back to the sort of neuroticism thing about how much you should use electional astrology to accentuate and give you a slight edge within the context of what is otherwise more or less normal, like operating procedure of. What you would do within the time frame you would do it otherwise versus just like going completely out of your way uh, to do it just for the sake of electional astrology, even if it's completely like counteracting the practical considerations. For sure. Yeah. And those are two ends of the extreme. And I was just kind of saying there's a little wiggle room around the edges, but. You know, um, but for the most part, you do need to figure out what the parameters are first because that is the only span of time you're going to be looking through to see what elections are possible. Yeah, I mean, you basically need to ignore dates outside of that time frame. Mm-hmm. Is my recommendation because there's no way you have to look at the dates within your available time frame. So let's say somebody wants to get married and they give you the dates June first through August fifteenth, you know, two thousand nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they give you because it's not just the dates; it's also the time frame. Because mm-hmm. so for something like an, a wedding, right? You know, it's got to be during specific hours usually, or the venue may have specific hours that are available. So let's say mm-hmm. between nine a.m. and five p.m. Mm-hmm. So that only gives you you know half the day to work with, basically. Right. Um, then you have other things like the locations. Like, it does it have to be in a specific location, or could you set it in a different location? Mm-hmm. You know how far away is the location? Does that change the chart significantly, or is it basically still the same charts? Right, and I generally make people set the location before doing anything else because otherwise you're working with too many variables. Yeah, you need to know your location, you need to know your times, and you need to know your dates, and then you need to ignore everything outside of that. So it mm-hmm. doesn't matter if in your location there's like one chart, 
but if you had them like go to Hawaii or something like that, it would be a completely different chart. Like that, mm -hmm. that doesn't matter because your election needs to be set for this specific location in this time frame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So establishing that's super important because the reason for that is not just because the things outside of that are out of your control, but you need to be able to judge everything that's within your time frame individual charts within that time frame relative to each other and not relative to what's outside of it because all that matters is the things that you can control or you can work with and that's the only thing that you can you should judge the charts relative to is just um, which one's better within that time frame or which date or which time is better within that time frame compared to others right yeah and I, I've noticed um, over time especially with doing client elections that there can be confusion over like how big of a time span to allow for an election. I mean, and sometimes it's just practically constrained by what's possible for them, but sometimes people really don't know. And, you know, generally the longer the time span is, the more options astrologically there will be. But then the longer the time span is, the much more it's much more work to as the electional astrologer to go through all of that. And it takes a lot more time to look at all the available options. So it's kind of like a you know, you've got kind of points on both sides for finding some sort of middle ground between like a completely open time span and like overly constrained. Yeah, I mean the trick the tricky part is that the more restrictions you have in terms of the time frame you have to work with, uh the harder it is because you have less options to work with if it's like super constrained. Right. Like if somebody says I have to get married and it has to be on this day, and it has to be within this three-hour time span. Right. That doesn't give you much to work with. No. You and do... I've gotten things like that occasionally. Yeah, that happens. And it's yeah. just slight variations in the chart. And sometimes that does make a difference. Like mm -hmm. you can choose one rising sign versus another. Right. Or at one time, like Saturn and Mars are on the midheaven versus an hour later, like Venus and Jupiter are on the midheaven, in which case you can make a tangible difference by choosing one chart or one time versus another. For sure. But that's still much more restrictive compared to if they give you a month and you can choose mm -hmm. between like 30 different dates and a bunch of different times within those dates over the course of a month that gives right. you more freedom but then it gives you also more variables and that's the point that you're making which is that the fewer restrictions there are the more work for you as the electional astrologer because mm -hmm. there's so many more options to choose from that you have to then narrow it down and sort of whittle away down to your final results. Right. So, you know, I kind of dissuade for people from going too much in the opposite direction. Like, here's a two-year time frame and I want to get married sometime in there. And like, no, get some constraints here. Yeah. And, and <laughs> managing like client stuff with electional is a whole almost like lecture and workshop. We could do like a weekend workshop on its on its own in terms of some of the issues that you run into with that in terms of and also like once you like get once a client tells you a time frame and then you look at all the charts relative to that time frame and rule them out if they later like change the time frame and say, well, could you also look at these dates like mm -hmm. two months later? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you're look, looking at me like very <laughs> shaking your head very vigorously. Right now. Yeah, yeah, that's that's no fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that just completely changes, it reshuffles the deck if you suddenly change the time frame because then you've got to like look at new charts and then rejudge all the charts rel re relative again to the availability. Yeah, it's almost a brand new thing. Right. Yeah. So that is tricky. Yeah. Um, anyway, so define your time frame. Ignore anything outside of it. Mm -hmm. um, this brings up the other major skill or art of electional astrology, which is just learning how to make the best out of what you have, mm -hmm. learning how to make the best out of what's available, and ignore 
everything outside of it and just realizing that there's no ideal chart. You're just trying to find the best one you can given what you have to work with. Right. It's kind of a funny like stoic type of um, attitude, ironically, even though this is obviously like trying to change your fate in some small way. Um, but then within the constraints, it's like, you know, radical acceptance of like what is and is not possible. Yeah. Well, it gives you just a really clear, very quickly, you quickly realize even though you're trying to control the outcome and it almost becomes like a magical type thing. And this is also interestingly where there is the most overlap between like the astrological and the ancient magical traditions. It's when it comes to electional astrology for electing things like talismans or other magical things. But once you start doing electional astrology, even though you're supposed to be doing something which is also simultaneously like the most free will, almost oriented type of astrology, because this is the one where, you know, in natal astrology, it's almost the more most deterministic on some level because the the basic premise is that the alignment of the planets the moment that you were born tells you something about your future, which then assumes that at least in some part our lives are predetermined. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to electional astrology, you would think that that's the most free will oriented branch because you're picking times and using astrology in order to almost like manipulate the outcome in some way. Mm -hmm. um, but you learn pretty quickly that even when you're doing that, you still have a lot of constraints and things are much more constrained than you would almost expect or imagine, which yeah, it does have interesting philosophical implications. Mm -hmm. Did I mean, is that something that we mentioned later in the outline in terms of philosophical stuff that may be relevant now? Um, I mean, Kind of similar to what we were just saying, I think. Just like I mean, one of them the is parameters because this is going to be more like conclusion stuff, but it might yeah. be useful now. Like, mm -hmm. um, it might give you the edge to help something go more positively that you're already going to do, but it's not necessarily fully going to change your fate. Yeah, and I think it's really important, and in, in terms of managing expectations, again, either yours or someone else's, to know that like it cannot completely override your natal chart. And what that is, what that suggests or doesn't suggest about what's possible for you, right? And that's something we'll get into more, especially later when we talk about the comparison between the natal chart and the electional chart, which is something that's that's integral to the process. But one of the things that all of the the ancient electional traditions seem to more or less agree about is is what you just said that the, you can't do or accomplish anything with the electional chart. That's not already somehow indicated in the birth chart itself. So there's this maybe stalemate's not the right term, but it's not that you're fully able to change things. You know, I can't, there's some things that you can't change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really important to go into doing elections knowing that or accepting that. Um, I have definitely had like, client requests where they want to kind of like override fate 100% and that's not possible. Or they, um, you can't micromanage life doing it no matter how many elections you use. You can't make everything go your way. Yeah. I mean, you can try. You can try. You can but... <laughs> certainly try and you can, and it's on some level, sometimes it's worth trying and it's worth pushing the boundaries of what is possible even if the deck is stacked against you and occasionally you might have successes or it might help to moderate things or make things better than they would have been mm -hmm. but um there there's definitely some things especially if it, if you've got it going against you in your natal chart that it's going to be tricky to find an electional chart that's just going to completely override that for sure I've done a couple of elections um, as like kind of like a minor example of that. I've done a couple of elections before for blogs 
and I'm clearly still not writing a blog. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's sort of like I'm not inclined to like write things quickly or, or that kind of thing. And so you can you can't take you can't do elections. And those those were kind of like early on, you know, examples or um, what's the word? Not examples, but experiments. Um, you can't find an election for something that would be like ideal out there in the world and make your being conform to that if it's not something you are not inclined to do otherwise. Yeah, or more extremely, like for example, I will no matter how good the election will try, I will probably never realize my dreams of like becoming Miss America or right. winning the Miss America beauty pageant or something like that. Sure. Despite the best electional chart that I've tried right. many times. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, yeah. I you mean, know, there's certain things that you can't override based on you know being born in a certain place at a certain time with certain availabilities. Um, which is is reflected in the birth chart, but also just reflected in what you know about your life and what's possible versus what's not possible. Right, and those are kind of like more like obvious. You know, people will be like, "Oh, of course you can't use," it. but you I mean, have to like. <laughs> you don't have to say it like that. <laughs> I mean, but but um, moving on. Um, but there's things sort of like more on the line where you might have to like think about like whether this is practically possible, not just like things like, oh, I'm not a person who would do that. But say even, for instance, getting up really early to record a, a podcast, you know, that's on the line of like, is the election more important than what practically will happen or what we know about ourselves? Because I, for instance, don't usually talk well early in the morning. And so, you know, there's lots of things like that where you have to kind of weigh like what's practically possible versus what you're trying to do with the election. Yeah, and some of this will come back. We'll bring this back up when we talk about the comparison with the natal chart, because I think a lot of it does come up there, which is comparing your electional chart back to the root chart of, you know, the people that are involved in that venture or the other charts that are relevant. Since the the singular electional chart is not necessarily the only chart that's relevant when you're starting something new. There's Definitely. there's always other charts going on and operating at different levels, and that's actually where. Inceptional astrology, like once you take the concept of natal astrology and you start applying it to other things besides just the birth of individuals, and you accept the basic premise that anything that is born at a specific moment and in time has a chart, you start realizing that like everything has a chart and that all of these charts are like interacting with each other on different levels and are operative in different ways mm -hmm. and are sometimes like conflicting and other times. Going well together, and they're getting like simultaneous transits, and they all have synastry with each other. You realize that things are actually really complicated, and astrologers are only sort of scratching the surface with what they're actually able to pay attention to or attempt to control at any one moment in time. Definitely. So things get get complicated. Mm -hmm. But let's try to keep it simple, since this is still like a basic <laughs> intro to yeah. electional astrology. So let's start talking about some technical stuff. If we got all of the philosophical stuff out of the way, mm -hmm, I think so. All right. So, um, tip number one, rule number one, the very first thing um, you have to pay attention to. Well, there's two things. So, first thing I want to say is, um, you know, years ago in the mid 2000s, I started studying electional astrology. Um, I found that there weren't a lot of books actually. There weren't a lot of modern books on electional astrology, and I didn't understand why at first. And I later realized that it's because most modern astrology was really in the late 20th century became geared towards psychological astrology and there was the, the rejection of concepts like benefic and malefic where 
there was even like one major astrology publisher that like banned the use of the terms benefic and malefic from ever being used as like an editorial policy in their books. So the removal of even like language like that in late modern astrology just completely removed the ability to do good electional astrology. And that's one of the reasons why there were not a lot of books on electional astrology um, until relatively recently. It's really the revival of traditional and older forms of astrology that's made full-fledged electional astrology possible possible again because it's reintroduced some of those distinctions about you know what's a constructive placement versus what's a challenging placement in a much more visceral way. So one of the things that I did is I started studying in the mid-2000s all of the ancient works on electional astrology that I could find that were recently being translated during the course of this, this translation project that had sprung up in the 1980s and 1990s when astrologers started going back to older texts. And um, a lot of the electional stuff is broken up into different chapters in the ancient authors where they'll tell you what kind of chart to shoot for depending on what you're trying to elect. Like if you're trying to elect a marriage, then do this and this and this. If you're trying to elect a chart for a journey, then try to focus on this in the chart. And there were certain factors that kept coming up and that they kept coming back to over and over again. So that eventually I sort of synthesized a general approach just based on what seemed to be constant things that they were often focused on in just about every electional example um, in some of those authors. So the two primary things that came up the most often and that became sort of core things for me in my approach to electional astrology, which I think is consistent with a large part of the electional tradition, is also sort of interchangeable or is somewhat true in the natal tradition and the horary tradition, is that the two most important significators in any electional chart that you really want to focus on the most is the ruler of the ascendant and the moon. And those become the two most important planets in any electional chart that you really want to focus on making sure that they're as well placed as you possibly can, um, no matter almost no matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we had questions about deal breakers. And really, these are kind of like where you want to start and where you want to focus on. And those are going to override anything else in the chart. Right. Yeah. So um, let's start with the first one, the ruler of the ascendant. Uh, so the ascendant, the first house, and the ruler of the first house represent the one who initiates the action at the time of the election. And it represents, it's the part of the chart that represents the most most closely that which is born at that specific moment in time. In the same way that in natal astrology, the first house and the ruler of the first house and the ascendant itself are the is the part of the chart that's most closely associated with the native the person who is born and who emerges into the world at that moment in time because the ascendant and the rising sign is literally the part of the sky that is rising or emerging out from underneath the earth at that specific moment in time so just as the native emerges at that moment in time and therefore the first house and the rising sign and the ruler of the rising sign are the most important um, planets oftentimes in describing the native in a birth chart in an electional chart that is also true and you should really focus on that part of the chart first as your primary thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And oftentimes people ask then what what does that mean? And you're basically using all of the same principles as you would in um we're using Hellenistic astrology principles, but you're going to be looking at 
the first house and the ascendant ruler in terms of um, sign, in terms of conditions. So sign, um, house placement, and aspects. Right. So you're going to focus on the ruler of the ascendant, and the ruler of the ascendant is going to represent um, both the person who initiates the action, but also that which is born at that time. So it's like if you're starting a journey, the planet that rules the ascendant is going to be the one that most represents you starting that journey and its success or failure. Mm -hmm. So what that means then is you're going to want to pay attention to the condition of the ruler of the ascendant, and you're going to apply what are pretty standard rules in most forms of traditional astrology in terms of planet determining planetary condition and trying to determine um, when a planet is well placed versus when a planet is either poorly placed or has some challenging things to it. Mm -hmm. So there's a sort of hierarchy, but the three primary things that you're paying attention to is that the planet is well placed according to the sign of the zodiac that it's in. The planet is well placed according to uh, which of the twelve houses that it's located in, and then the planet is well placed in in terms of the aspects that it has from other planets in the chart, especially relative to the benefic planets and the malefic planets. Those are the three primary things that you're paying attention to in terms of determining the condition of the ruler of the ascendant in the chart. And those are the three primary things that you're going to want to make as optimal as possible in terms of aiming for more positive placements and sort of trying to avoid more negative ones. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, I guess we should do some preliminary stuff. Um, in terms of uh, we're using two factors that we're using for this that we would recommend that other people use are going to be the traditional rulership scheme for the signs of the zodiac. And then we're also going to be using, for the most part, whole sign houses when we're looking at house placements. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So basically, um, the outer planets, while we do use them in the chart, we do not use them as sign rulers. And so you have the traditional rulers where um, a few of them rule more than one sign. And we're using whole sign houses. We will also pay attention to the exact degree of the angles, like the ascendant, descendant angles, and um, midheaven. But um, but we'll, we're starting with the whole sign houses. Sure. So here's a diagram for those that are watching the video version that just shows the traditional rulership scheme. So you have the two luminaries assigned to Cancer and Leo. So the moon assigned to Cancer, then the sun assigned to Leo. Then the rest of the the visible planets that can be seen with the naked eye are assigned um, flanking out from the sun and moon based on their relative speed and distance from the sun. So Mercury gets assigned to Gemini and Virgo. Venus gets assigned to Taurus and Libra. Mars gets assigned to Aries and Scorpio. Jupiter to Sagittarius and Pisces, and Saturn to Capricorn and Aquarius. So that's the traditional rulership scheme, and um, that becomes important because when we talk about the the ruler of the ascendant, what we mean is that um, when the ascendant is in a certain sign, the planet that rules that sign according to these traditional rulerships becomes the ruler of the ascendant. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, let's say we have the ascendant in Leo. That means the sun, which is the ruler of Leo, becomes the ruler of the ascendant. And as a result of that, we're going to pay close attention to the sun and how it's placed in the chart. So in our example here, let's say the sun is in Taurus and it's in the 10th house. So we want to take into account its sign placement in Taurus. We want to take into account its house placement in the 10th house. And then we want to take into account the aspects to the sun 
uh, especially from the benefic planets Venus and Jupiter and the malefic planets Mars and Saturn. Exactly. All right. So um, let's see. So going back, the other basic concept is whole sign houses. So with whole sign houses, of course, which I've mentioned a million times on the podcast, uh, if the ascendant is located anywhere in a sign, so wherever the, the ascendant is located, that sign becomes the first house. The sign after that becomes the second house. The sign after that becomes the third house, and so on and so forth. Uh, you can go back and listen to other episodes or go to my YouTube channel for a short, concise video on whole sign houses for more information about that approach. Yeah, we'll get to the distinction between like whole sign houses and quadrant houses in just a second. Mm -hmm. um, so the ruler of the ascendant becomes the primary planet in the chart. Uh, and what are some of the factors? So let's go through and break down just really quickly some of the things that indicate like a positive placement versus a negative placement in terms of those three areas in terms of sign placement, house placement, and aspect from other planets. So here's an example. So this is an election from like a few years ago uh, where in this chart, we have Virgo rising, so the ascendant is in Virgo. So, because the ascendant is in Virgo, the planet that we want to pay the most attention to, the primary planet that's going to represent this electional chart and represent you in the electional chart and what you're trying to accomplish by initiating an action at that time uh, with Virgo rising is going to be Mercury, the ruler of Virgo. Mm -hmm. So, how is Mercury doing in this chart? So Mercury in this chart is placed in Gemini, which is one of the signs that it rules. And so it's actually well-placed by sign because it's in one of its own rulerships. Right. So, so right there, that's a positive point in Mercury's favor. And that's one of the things that you want to try to do with the ruler of the ascendant is you want to try to make it dignified by sign placement to what as long if you can, if you at all can. And that's one of the things that you're going to gravitate towards. And it's one of my tips actually in my course when you first start doing elections is actually to look at your time frame. Let's say you have an entire month and one of the things you can do is like pull out an ephemeris and go through and identify or like highlight in an ephemeris page the dates in which certain planets are dignified either by being in their own domicile, which is the sign that they rule. So for example, Mercury being in Gemini is Mercury being in the sign that it rules or one of the signs that it rules. Uh, also, identify periods. Another type of dignity is exaltation. So, identify periods when planets are in their exaltations, which is the next best thing after a planet being in its domicile. And then the third thing after that is sort of lower than those previous two, but also pretty good, is planets being in a mutual reception or exchanging signs with each other. Mm -hmm. So, being in the signs that each other's rule. So here's an example from, let's say this is an ephemeris from May of 2014. And I've gone through and I've highlighted that on the 4th and 5th of May 2014, the moon is in Cancer in the sign that it rules. Or between the 26th and the 28th, the moon is in Taurus, which is the sign of its exaltation. Um, other planets in dignity this month, during that month, is from the 8th through the 29th of May 2014, Mercury was in Gemini. So we know that Mercury is dignified in that time. So that's going to be a period where we like gravitate towards trying to find an election where we can make Mercury the ruler of the ascendant. Um, other dates, Venus was exalted in Pisces from the 1st through the 3rd of May, and Jupiter was exalted in Cancer from the 1st all the way through 
the end of the month through the 31st of May. So that gives us some planets that we can kind of zoom in on or, or focus in on in terms of trying to make those planets the ruler of the ascendant, because that becomes the next step is finding a time then where we can make that planet the ruler of the ascendant when it's dignified. Right. And that's like a kind of a quick way to start narrowing down your time frame. Um, and especially because usually there aren't that many at one time. Right. That, that are was, that was in, kind of a unique. Yeah, that update. was actually <laughs> like I don't usually have that, op- that many options. Right. Um, yeah. So it's usually there's fewer options than that in terms of um, a planet in some sort of dignity. And so you can start narrowing down very quickly from there. Yeah. So um, that's one of the things I did in this chart is I focused on just Mercury being in its own sign, and then I made Mercury the ruler of the ascendant so that it's not just that Mercury is in its own sign, but it actually then becomes the focal planet of our electional chart because it's the ruler of the ascendant. Right. All right. So the other thing I focused on here is the house placement of Mercury. Mm -hmm. So Mercury is in the 10th house, which is one of the best houses. It's one of the most prominent houses, but it's also one of the so-called good houses because it's a house that's configured to the ascendant. So this is another one of those traditional distinctions or one of those distinctions from traditional astrology where there's certain houses that are more positive and there's certain houses that are more challenging. Um, and this is based on the concept or this is referred to as the concept of good and bad houses. Yeah. So it's really important to place your ascendant ruler either in an angular house, which would be the first, fourth, seventh, and tenth houses, or otherwise one of the so-called good houses that aspects the ascendant um, through some sort of major aspect. Right. So if the first house, the basic premise is that if the first house represents um, you, the one who initiated the action, and it indicates the the sort of vitality of whatever you initiated at that time, then the houses that aspect through a major uh, aspect, a Ptolemaic aspect, the first house, are houses that are going to be supportive of what you initiated at that time versus the houses that do not aspect the rising sign are going to be not as supportive or in some instances are going to be ones that work against whatever you initiated at that time. Mm -hmm. So the basic breakdown then is that the good houses are the first house, the third house, the fourth house, the fifth, seventh, ninth, tenth, and eleventh houses, whereas the bad houses are the twelfth, eighth, sixth, and second houses, since those four houses do not aspect the rising sign through a major aspect, which is the conjunction, sextile, square, trine, or opposition. So this is basic like traditional astrology 101 basically, but it bears repeating since for a lot of people, these can be new rules that you're not going to be familiar with if you're coming from the perspective of a purely modern astrologer where some of these distinctions have been have been lost. Well, for sure. And if you haven't been used to this idea at all of good and bad houses, um, I encourage people to experiment with doing really um, small things when the um, ascendant ruler is in one of those bad houses, something that you don't need to go well. And you can actually see it in action, not going as well as usual. Yeah. And it's like we still have some of these concepts embedded in modern astrology where, like, the eighth house is associated with death, or the sixth house is sometimes associated with illness. And, you know, it just becomes a question of, you know, if you have an electional chart, um, where are you going to put the ruler of the ascendant? Do you want to put the ruler of the ascendant in, let's say, you're doing a wedding chart? So it's a chart supposed to represent a wedding. 
do you want to put the ruler of the ascendant in the eighth house, which sometimes represents death? Or do you want to put the ruler of the ascendant in the 11th house, which sometimes represents friendship? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which would you go for? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> oh, you, okay. <laughs> Definitely the 11th. <laughs> yeah, 11th house, I'm going to say more qualitatively better placement for a marriage chart. Yeah. Now, if you're trying to elect, I don't know what you try to elect where you, there's other things uh, you would I elect. I don't elect for the, bad things. <laughs> maybe we don't want to go into that. No. Um, but yeah, so that's an example then of qualitatively um, why you would want to put like the ruler of the ascendant in one of the good houses that aspect the ascendant versus one of the more challenging houses unless there's there, there's exceptions to that unless there's something specific mm-hmm. about that house that's quote unquote challenging that matches the nature of your election right it might be okay to use it right um, under certain conditions and as long as you put certain mitigations in place which mitigate the more challenging um, side effects of putting the placement in that house. There's ways to get around things where you can improve it to make it better than it otherwise would be. But we're talking in terms of especially like ideals here. And the ideal is that ideally you want to place the ruler of the ascendant in one of the good houses. And if you can, you want to avoid placing the ruler of the ascendant in one of the bad houses. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I think we're on the same page. So that takes us back to our um, electional chart from whenever this was back in 2014 that I used for for something. And we see that not only do I have Mercury as the ruler of the ascendant placed in its own sign, but it's also in the 10th house. And the 10th house, of course, forms a square with the first house. So that's why it's one of the good houses. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And then the 10th house is one of the most prominent invisible angular houses, first and 10th being pretty prominent. Right, um, it's one of the more powerful houses, and we'll definitely we'll get to angularity as a major component mm-hmm. here in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see if I have another electional chart. I mean, we can also do like so. Here's another election. Let's say we have a chart with Pisces rising. So Jupiter is the traditional ruler of the ascendant, and in this chart, Jupiter is exalted in the sign of its exaltation in Cancer in the fifth house. Mm-hmm. So again, it's in a good house, which is trying to the ascendant by, right. by sign. Right. Here's another one. We have uh, Cancer rising, and the ruler of the ascendant is the moon, which is located in Pisces in the ninth house, which is again one of the good houses. And Pisces is not typically otherwise a sign where the moon is dignified, but this is one of the examples of using mutual reception where even if you can't get a planet in its own sign, if you can get it exchanging signs with the ruler of the sign that it's in, then that can almost be just as good as being in its domicile or exaltation. Mm-hmm. So in this instance, the moon is the ruler of the ascendant. It's in Pisces in the ninth house, and the ruler of Pisces traditionally is Jupiter, which is placed in Cancer in the first house, which is the moon's sign. And the moon is actually applying to a trine with Jupiter, creating a full-fledged mutual reception. Right. So that's an example of the three three major types of dignity which is like domicile exaltation and mutual reception and trying your best in an ideal situation to make it so that um, the ruler of the ascendant is dignified in one of those three ways if you cannot if at all possible mm-hmm. and it's not always possible but that's best case scenario right what I mean other yeah, so that's best yeah, case scenario. That's best case scenario. Because if you can't get that, we'll also be doing other things here that you can try to do. Sure. Okay. So that's um dignified by sign. 
um, angular or in a good house that aspects the ascendant. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the third category is um, the aspect. You want the planet to be aspected by the benefics, which are Venus and Jupiter. And you want your, your ruler of the ascendant to be free from hard aspects, so no hard aspects from the malefic planets Mars and Saturn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and those are really important. Um, those will significantly impact, even so the starting point is, of course, the condition of the ascendant ruler, but significantly coloring it will be um, whether it has good aspects from the benefics or harmful aspects from the malefics. Right, because what you run into, so one of the rules that we should introduce at this point, which is actually one of the most important rules of electional astrology, and it's actually the the point at which astrologers, especially coming from modern astrology, where you like finally understand what the the applying versus separating thing means, which is always kind of like an abstract thing that in modern astrology, like on astro.com, you see in the Aspectarian, where it says like A or S mm -hmm. next to the aspects, and it's like applying versus separating, but right. like nobody really knows what that means or what it's used for in the context of natal. It's actually super useful and super crucial within the context of electional because it turns out that in the context of electional astrology, applying aspects between planets in your electional chart indicate things that are developing in the future, whereas separating aspects indicate things that have already happened in the past. Prior to the the moment of your election, right. And since um, part of the entire idea of an election is what's going to happen in the future, or trying to influence what's going to happen in the future, you really are wanting to you, you pay attention to both aspects, but especially the applying aspects because of that indication of what will still be coming up that has not happened yet. Right. You end up putting a lot of emphasis on applying aspects in electional astrology. Perhaps more more emphasis than separating aspects, which is not to say that you should ignore separating aspects, but definitely there's times where you have to choose between things, and if you have to choose between like a bad applying aspect or a bad separating aspect, you're going to focus on um, putting the bad aspect as separating because you want the bad stuff moving into the past rather than something that's still coming up in the future that's going to be like a, a roadblock or a barrier that you run run into at some point in the future. Definitely. Uh, and then, and vice versa with positive aspects. Mm -hmm. Right. So you really, ideally, want um, um, important things in the chart, which are primarily the ascendant ruler and then the moon, as we'll we'll talk about in a moment, um, applying to benefic planets rather than separating from. Right. So let me give an example with, let's say, a conjunction. So here is. Uh, for those listening to the audio version, imagine you have a chart where you have Virgo rising and Mercury is the ruler of the ascendant, so it's your most important planet in the chart, and it's located at 15 degrees of Gemini. It's in the 10th house. So it's basically our electional chart from earlier where we have this really well-placed Mercury as the ruler of the ascendant where it's in its own sign. It's in the 10th house, which is great. So let's imagine that Mercury at 15 degrees of Gemini that we have Saturn on one side of Mercury at 9 degrees of Gemini and we have Jupiter on the other side of Mercury at 20 degrees of Gemini. Right. And let's imagine that Mercury is direct, he's not retrograde, so he's moving forward in zodiacal order rather than backwards. So in this example, Mercury would be separating from a conjunction with Saturn and applying to a conjunction with Jupiter. And under our premise that applying aspects indicate the future and separating aspects indicate the past, 
this would actually be pretty good because it means that Mercury's moving away from Saturn and thus moving away from a more difficult planet and is moving towards Jupiter and thus moving towards a more positive planet. So symbolically, this would be indicating some a situation where um, the challenges are moving into the past, but the there's positive things coming up over the horizon in the future. Mm -hmm, exactly. Uh, conversely, let's switch it up and let's say Mercury and Jupiter have switched places. So Mercury is still at 15 degrees of Gemini, but now Jupiter is at 9 degrees of Gemini and Saturn is at 20 degrees of Gemini. So in this situation, it's the reverse because Mercury, if it's direct here, would be separating from the conjunction with Jupiter and applying to a conjunction with Saturn. And so this would be a scenario where the good things would be moving into the past and the more challenging things would be still coming up in the future. So this would be the less optimal scenario if we had to choose between an electional chart that had these two situations. We would go with the first one where Mercury is separating from the malefic and applying to the benefic rather than vice versa. So right there, just from those basic you know, fundamental rules, we're starting to see um, some early instances of, of how we would start to prioritize a chart that's that's better or worse and how we would start to rank them or start to filter out different charts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I don't have much more to say about that. <laughs> okay. So um, yeah, so aspects to to the planet. So we're focused here on, on degree-based aspects at the moment, but this is also true. Our initial starting point is actually sign-based aspects where um, any sort of sign-based aspect to um, a benefic is going to be positive for the ruler of the ascendant. Um, even more positive if it's a degree-based aspect because degree-based aspects are, are more intense than sign-based aspects. And even better if it's also an applying aspect rather than a separating one. Right. So different like levels again, sort of a hierarchy of like sign-based aspect, degree-based aspect, applying degree-based aspect. Definitely. Yeah. And as you said earlier, I mean, all of these are going to be kind of um, echoing the same um, basic Hellenistic principles that you would use overall in evaluating any chart, but we're just using them proactively in this instance. So there's a lot of those distinctions where um, you know once you learn them, then you just apply them all here. Right. And I wrote an entire book about this. Yeah, I was like, we can't cover all of this in one <laughs> one episode. Well, I mean, we've got well, there's a problem. I mean, we've got to cover a lot of sure. it just because that's the basic techniques of electional astrology. No, so we're going to sure. give a cursory sort of overview of it here. Uh, but otherwise, if you want to go more into detail, uh, my book is titled <laughs> Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, available in five fine bookstores everywhere. Also newly available on Google Books as an ebook. I finally released it as an ebook and it's only like $15 there. Mm. Uh, so if you search on Google Books, I think for Hellenistic Astrology, you'll find the book there. Otherwise, it's available on Amazon for I think like $40 or something or $30 for the print book. Mm. Okay. The price has gone down since it got released. Right, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, aspects to the ruler of the ascendant. So, I've just talked about like aspects to benefics that, you, like, any sort of aspect from a benefic that you, you can get is good. Worst case scenario or least optimal scenario is not having any aspect, even a sign based aspect from a benefic to the ruler of the ascendant is the, the sort of least optimal scenario. Right. And we're talking about any whole sign aspects. So, um, you know, any any co-presence in the same sign, squares, trines, sextiles, even oppositions from the benefics are still helpful. Right. Um, so other than that, conversely with the malefics, 
you want to avoid especially hard aspects from the malefics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hard aspects are the conjunction, the square, and the opposition. So, And then you go through the same hierarchy where it's like there's a sign-based aspect from a malefic, which is not great. There's a degree-based aspect within, let's say, a few degrees from a malefic, which is worse, a hard aspect. And then there's a applying uh, hard aspect with a malefic, which is typically a worst-case scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you really want to avoid hard aspects with malefics. Um, easy aspects are okay, especially the trine or the sextile can be fine. And sometimes in some instances, it's almost optimal to just have a complete lack of any sort of aspect. So an aversion between the ruler of the ascendant and a malefic so that they just have no relationship to each other in some instances is the ideal scenario. For sure. Yeah, just kind of tucking it away unnoticed, um, not really interacting with primary factors would be good. Right. So let's back up to my electional chart example to see how I how I did uh, based on those rules. Actually, I didn't do very good in this one. <laughs> uh, this is my electional chart. So it had, a again, Virgo rising, Mercury in Gemini at 23 degrees of Gemini. It is not aspecting Jupiter at all because they're in adjacent signs, which is not considered a major aspect. However, we do have a nice sextile coming from Venus at 22 degrees of Aries over to Mercury at 23 degrees of Gemini. So there is a sextile between Venus, which is then seen as helping out or or supporting Mercury. Mm How is it doing in terms of aspects with the malefic planets? Let's see. So it's in aversion to Saturn and then- So Saturn is at 19 degrees of Scorpio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's not in a sign-based aspect to Saturn at all, Mercury. and it's in a sign-based trine with Mars, but not applying. Right. So, and the trine is an easy aspect, so we're not really worried about that. And it's also not applying, and it's if anything, it's moving away from any sort of degree-based aspect. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Mercury's in great shape in this chart, basically. And that's one of the reasons I chose this chart, because it fits those three categories, which ideally we're going for in every election when it comes to the ruler of the ascendant, which is that we want it to be well-placed by sign, Mm -hmm. we want it to be well-placed by house, and we want it to be well-placed by aspect, which is to say having supporting aspects from the benefics and and not having challenging or destructive aspects from the malefics. Mm -hmm. All right. So that is, in a nutshell, the three primary considerations. And one of the primary things that we're going to try to do in almost every electional chart is make the ruler of the ascendant well-placed according to those criteria. Right. So if you do nothing else, do everything we just said. Right. And that's all you have to do. (laughs) Well, the ascendant ruler, you know, it's one factor in the chart. It is multiple factors in terms of condition, but it is only one planet in the chart. Well, and I was actually just joking because that seems probably seems like a lot to somebody is like, Oh, that's all you have to do right. is those like 20. Well, compared to everything else we would normally do. Considerations. Right. Yeah. Well, this is actually just the starting point. So right, this exactly. is one one primary factor in the chart. But remember at the start of this, I actually said you had two primary significators that you have to pay attention to. Right. So you need to do this with the ruler of the ascendant. Um, actually, I'm going to throw up really quickly our chart for today. Let me see if I can. It looks like our ascendant has changed, but let me back it up to this was our electional chart for today. If I back this up a little bit, um, 
where we started just after nine o'clock this morning with early Pisces rising. So the electional chart we were shooting for for this episode had uh, Pisces rising, and the ascendant then is uh, ruled by Jupiter. Jupiter is the ruler of the ascendant, and this year in 2019, of course, in early 2019, Jupiter has moved into Sagittarius. So Jupiter is in its own sign. So it's actually relatively well placed this year for electional charts, where a lot of our electional charts this year are going to feature Jupiter ruling the ascendant because since it's in its own sign, that means it's dignified. And so we're trying to take advantage of it as much as possible this year for elections. So with uh, Pisces rising, Jupiter is the ruler of the ascendant and it's placed in Sagittarius in its own domicile in the 10th house. And it's also conjunct the degree of the midheaven. Uh, or it was just past the midheaven, I think, once we actually finally got started because we started a little bit late, which is a problem that you run into pretty commonly with electional charts. Uh, but that's why you often, if you can, want to build in a, a sort of window of opportunity so that you know when the starting uh, start of the window of opportunity is versus when the end point of the window of opportunity is so that you know as long as you do everything within this time span of like, let's say, an hour or 30 minutes or what have you, that you are still meeting the electional criteria versus um, you know, doing it just outside of that window. Anyway, so the chart has Pisces rising, Jupiter's the ruler of the ascendant, it's placed in Sagittarius in the 10th house. It's also in a forming conjunction with Venus where Venus is applying to it. It does not have any hard aspects by Mars and Saturn. So Mars is in a trine with Jupiter, Saturn is in aversion, it has no aspect with Jupiter by major aspect. Uh, so it's a really excellently placed ruler of the ascendant, and that's mm -hmm. why we shot for that electional chart and woke up earlier than we would have normally, even though we were up late working on this presentation last night. Right, exactly. Um, some t some days or some spans of time, there are more usable rising signs throughout the day than others. And right now, the best ones are early in the morning or very late in the middle of the night. And so we chose to get up early for that one. Right. Early for at the crack of seven, seven. o'clock. Yeah, for most people it's not early, yeah. but for us it is. <laughs> All right. So, um, ruler of the ascendant. So those are two examples of ruler of the ascendant. We could throw out a ton of other examples, but I think that suffices for now for yeah. the purpose of this. Yeah. So let's move on. So we we talked about the ruler of the ascendant as being the first significator and primary significator in any electional chart. The second one that you want to try to pay attention to in every electional chart is the moon. The moon is the closest uh, celestial body to us. It's also the fastest. It moves around the zodiac in just a month. It'll com it'll complete a complete circuit around the signs of the zodiac, um, and in just about every electional chart, it acts as a general significator for the election as a whole and for the sort of sequence of events that will take place in the election as a whole because it's the planet that will apply to and separate from other planets the most frequently and the most quickly. Mm -hmm, exactly. So it's kind of carrying the motion forward of what you're doing or what you're hoping to accomplish with the election. So even though we're listing it second, it's kind of co-equal to the first rule. It's like both of these are super primary, even if, though you start with the ascendant ruler. Right. So um, acts as a general significator. So Basically, what you want to do with the moon is ensure that the moon is well placed in every chart that you do, according to the same three primary sort of pieces or three primary criteria, which is making sure it's in a good zodiacal sign, making sure it's in a good house, and making sure that it has good aspects with 
other planets in the chart, basically. Mm -hmm. Right. So all the same things we just went through with the ascendant ruler kind of more slowly, you're going to do the same exact process with the moon. Right. So you want to put the moon in a good sign. So sometimes that means like trying to put it in its own sign, like putting it in Cancer, putting it in its exaltation, which is Taurus, uh, putting it in a mutual reception. I showed that chart example earlier where I had the moon in Pisces in a mutual reception with Jupiter in Cancer. Um, the next best thing after that, which I talk about in my book, is just having a reception at all. So if the moon is in a sign that it doesn't rule, if it's in a sign that's ruled by another planet, then um, having the moon be applying to an aspect with the the ruler of its sign is usually more positive than nothing. Mm -hmm. That's like the fourth category down in terms of trying to make the planet have some sort of or any planet have some sort of sign-based dignity is just having it have reception with its planetary ruler. Mm -hmm. uh, so other things, put it in a good house. So try to put it in one of the good houses that aspects the ascendant and not in one of the bad houses that's an aversion to the ascendant. Right. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, one good rule to bring up here that is a pretty ancient, actually, electional rule that that comes from Petasiris, and I think it got inserted into Dorotheus at some point as well, which is the notion that the condition of the moon indicates how the electional chart will go in the first part. Uh, but the condition of the ruler of the moon uh, indicates how things will turn out or how it will go in the second part of the election. So it's like um, if the moon is well placed, the way this works out in practice is if the moon is well placed by house, um, then things will go well initially. But if the ruler of the moon is poorly placed and is in a bad house, like the eighth house, the twelfth house, then things will go in well initially, but then they'll fall apart later on. Mm -hmm. uh, or vice versa, if the moon is poorly placed but its ruler is well placed, then things will go poorly initially, but later on they'll go much better or they'll improve. Right, and that's one of excuse me, that's one of multiple reasons why it can be better to just put the moon in its own sign, um, because then you don't have to worry about it. The same things go true for the ascendant ruler. We didn't mention that yet, but um, the ruler of the ascendant ruler is conditioned. Just like you would evaluate that for the moon, you would do the same. Yeah, and this is basically one of the reasons why traditionally it was viewed as more positive for a planet to be in its own sign and why it was mm -hmm. often interpreted that way because planets are self-sufficient when they're in their own signs. and It's like a person who's mm -hmm. living in their own house um, where they don't have to rely on anybody else for support or for sustenance because they're literally like at home and they can support and feed themselves and therefore go out and do their job in the way that's most effective for them versus if they're in a sign that's ruled by another planet it's like a person staying away from home who has to who has to rely on their host for support. Mhm. Mm right. I always really like that analogy. And so while it's just pragmatically useful um, to put it in its own sign because then you don't have to kind of deal with the multiple layers of its condition, um, it's also more self-sufficient as you said. Right. So um, yeah, making this paying attention to the ruler of the moon is important. It's also somewhat important even though I skipped over it for the ruler of the ascendant. Right. So that's another factor that we're paying attention to for the ruler of the ascendant is mm -hmm. we're just like multiplying factors here. Right. And this might sound kind of overwhelming if you're first getting introduced to it, but um like we were talking about just kind of getting experience with doing this over and over or looking for elections over and over, um it goes more quickly once you you do it a lot. 
Yeah, definitely. So going back to, for example, my electional chart or one of my electional charts from a few years ago. So here is the chart where I had Virgo rising and Gemini ruling the ascendant up in the 10th house. So the moon in this chart is in Pisces. It's in the middle of Pisces and it's at 17 degrees of Pisces. It's in the 7th house, which is one of the good houses. Um, it has no aspect to Mars and it just has a trine to Saturn. And the moon at 17 Pisces is applying to a trine with Jupiter at 18 degrees of Cancer. Mm -hmm. So not as it, not only is it an applying positive, a trine applying positive aspect that's close in degree with a benefic planet, um, but it also is in a mutual reception with Jupiter because the moon is in Pisces and Jupiter is in Cancer, so they're in each other's signs. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is one of my you know, a nice electional chart that I used several years ago because not only does it have the ruler of the ascendant well-placed, but the moon is also well-placed. So it fits the two primary criteria that we're shooting for in each electional chart, which is to try to make it as best as we can so that the ruler of the ascendant and the moon are well-placed by sign, by house, and by aspect. Mm -hmm. Right. And then if you went and looked at the ruler of the moon, which is what we were saying to do after that, um, Jupiter is exalted in Cancer, and so it's a really good ruler in that respect in terms of sign. It does have a square to Mars, but Jupiter is in the superior position. It's earlier in the order of signs, and so it has the upper hand over Mars. So even though there is a square to Mars, Jupiter is still in the in the better position. Right, and Jupiter is also in the 11th house. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's in a good house. Right. So pretty good uh, positioning there for both the ruler of the Ascendant and the Moon. As a hypothetical example, mm -hmm. um, I mean it's not completely hypothetical because I used it for other things. So look, let's look at. I've been giving like good examples, but here's let's give a bad example or one that's more challenging. Mm -hmm. So here's a chart set for May twenty first, twenty fourteen. So this is still the same period when um, Mercury was in Gemini, but here I've changed it so that instead of trying to take advantage of Mercury, instead we have I moved the ascendant into Sagittarius. So the ascendant then is ruled by Jupiter, by Jupiter, and Jupiter is exalted in Cancer still. However, in this chart, it's in the eighth house, mm -hmm. so it's it's in a good sign, but it's in the eighth house, which is really not that optimal in terms of house placement. So let's look at the other significator, which is the Moon. So here in this chart, we have the Moon no longer in Pisces, so it's no longer applying to Jupiter and no longer in that mutual reception with Jupiter, but now it's in Aries. Uh, it's in the fifth house, which is a good house. However, it is at five degrees of Aries. It's applying to an opposition with Mars at nine degrees of Libra. Mm -hmm. So this would be this would be a no go. This would be a deal breaker because we have the Moon as as our second most important significator in every chart, applying to so moving towards in the future an exact hard aspect in opposition with a malefic planet, in this case Mars. Mm -hmm, exactly. So we have more than one factor here for the foundation of the election though that are like do not do for the rules. Right. Putting the ruler of the ascendant in a bad house and making it so that the moon as a secondary significator or co-significator of the electional chart is afflicted through applying to an opposition with Mars. Exactly. All right. So bad times. <laughs> right. <laughs> So those are our two primary things we're paying attention to in every electional chart is the ruler of the ascendant and the moon mm -hmm. and those three criteria of sign placement, 
house placement and aspect. Um, let's move on to a third thing to pay attention to and a third piece of criteria in every electional chart, and this is um, angularity and focusing on planets in angular houses as being more prominent in any electional chart. Right. That the four angular houses, which are the first house, the fourth house, the seventh house, and the tenth house, those are the four angular houses, and any planets that you put in those four houses are going to be more prominent in any electional chart that you create. And so therefore, you're going to want to tend to one of the rules is you're going to want to tend to emphasize and make more prominent the positive planets or the benefic planets, and you're going to want to tend to make less prominent or to downplay or mitigate the more challenging planets, like the malefic planets, by not making them angular. Exactly. Because anything you put in the first, fourth, um, seventh, or tenth houses is just going to stand out that much more and have its energy emphasized for better or worse. Yeah, exactly. So the, it becomes a question of like, what do you want to emphasize and um, how do you want to do that? So, so, emph so, so emphasis in this context comes through being angular. And so you want to be really careful then. Once you get your ruler of the ascendant and your moon down, the next thing you want to pay attention to is by, by putting a certain rising sign, by putting the ascendant in a certain sign, what planets are you making angular? Um, and initially here we're going to start with just by whole sign house placement. Like ultimately you want to pay attention to both angularity by whole sign house as well as by quadrant house. Um, but we're going to focus and really emphasize initially the whole sign house placement where um, if you have one sign rising, you know that you automatically have three other signs that suddenly become angular. Mm -hmm. And we're listing that third as just for the sake of like linear discussion, but in practice, um, once you decide the what the first house is, you'll automatically notice you know what's becoming angular if you make that decision. Right. So let's take a look at some example charts, some hypothetical charts, to, just to give you some examples. So let's say we have a chart where Leo is rising, and Jupiter is anywhere in the sign of Leo, and so let's just I'll describe the chart as a whole. Let's say we have a chart with Leo rising, Jupiter in Leo, Venus in Libra, Saturn in Aries, the Sun in Gemini, and Mars in Cancer. So, in terms of angular whole sign houses, when you have Leo rising, that means the angular houses are Leo, Scorpio, Aquarius, and Taurus. And the only planet that is angular in this chart is going to be Jupiter because Jupiter's in Leo and it's the only planet in a fixed sign, and therefore it's the only planet that's angular, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that would be positive. That would mean that we're emphasizing in this chart Jupiter because it's the only angular planet in the chart. Conversely, um, in terms of uh, emphasis, so the the level or the gradation is something like this: that the most prominent planets are angular planets. The second most prominent planets, or the next tier, is succedent planets because succedent planets are rising up towards the angles. So it's another one of those situations where it's something that's coming up in the future, in the not too distant future, when a planet is in a succedent house. The succedent houses are the second, fifth, eighth, and eleventh. So that's the next most prominent. And then the least or the third tier, the final tier of the least prominent houses are the cadent houses. 
because planets in cadent houses are falling away from the angles or moving away from them, and so cadent houses also to some extent represent things that are moving into the past rather than either being present, being, being prominent in the present, which is angular houses, or rising up in the future, which is succedent houses. Right. So in this case, in this hypothetical chart, you kind of have best case scenario in terms of what we're talking about right now because Jupiter is the only angular planet and it's very prominent in the first house, first whole sign house. And then with a Leo rising chart um, with Saturn in Aries and Mars in Cancer, those are both in cadent houses in the ninth and the twelfth houses. And so they're kind of tucked away in terms of prominence, which um, correspondingly means their energies are kind of like tucked away in terms of being not prominently expressed in whatever you're trying to elect at that time. Right. So Jupiter's prominent in this chart because it's angular, and the two malefics, Saturn and Mars, are not prominent because they're cadent in the ninth and twelfth. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. So let's imagine though that we switch it up. So let's change it so that Leo's rising, but now Jupiter's in Cancer in the twelfth house, and Mars is in Leo in the first house in the rising sign. Right. So suddenly Mars is the most prominent planet in this chart because it's an angular planet, and this would be potentially a deal breaker because we want to generally try to avoid angular malefics in most electional charts that we're doing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this uh, would be a deal breaker for me. So there's other criteria for that which is sect, which we'll get into in just a second, which is a significant enough mitigating factor where sometimes you can get away with doing angular malefics as long as the sect uh, is mitigating them. Mm -hmm. But if sect is not mitigating them, so for example, if it's Mars in a day chart or Saturn in a night chart, that is a deal breaker um, in terms of making that malefic angular in that particular chart. Exactly. Yeah, that is the most important thing to avoid for sure. Right. In terms of our like hierarchy of things to avoid. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Let's look at another chart. Let's say we've got another chart with Leo rising and we have Venus and Scorpio in the fourth house and Jupiter in. Taurus in the tenth house and the Sun in Gemini in the eleventh house, and I've made an astronomically impossible chart <laughs> because Venus has somehow broken free of yeah, I see that. the orbit of the Sun, and it is now six signs away, which is not possible unless we've had some sort of cataclysm <laughs> in the solar system. Yeah, so basically, this is like post-apocalyptic uh, electional astrology, right. where we exist somehow as like atoms in the universe floating out there, but we're still doing these elections. Venus is like on our way out of the solar system, <laughs> right? All right, so let's hypothetically assume that that's possible. Um, in this chart, we have Venus is angular in the fourth house, and Jupiter is angular in the tenth whole sign house in Taurus. And Mars and Saturn are cadent in Cancer, and the Mars is in Cancer in the twelfth, and Saturn is cadent in Capricorn in the sixth house. So this would be um, again another positive best case scenario where both of the benefics are angular and both of the malefics are cadent. So the benefics are more prominent in this chart, and the malefics are less prominent. Mm -hmm. Let's switch it up one more time, and let's say we've got a chart where Leo is rising, and we have Venus and Libra in the third house, Jupiter in Cancer in the twelfth house, um, Mars has moved to Taurus in the tenth house, and Saturn has moved to Aquarius in the seventh house. Right. So this would be something to avoid because Mars is very prominent in the tenth angular house. Um, Saturn's also angular in the seventh house. And then you have the benefics tucked away in the 12th and um, third houses. 
Right. So this would be worst case scenario because we have the malefics prominent and we have the benefics not prominent. Exactly. And to the extent that the malefics tend to indicate challenges, hardship, and difficulties, whereas the benefics tend to promote ease and success and good fortune, um, we're going to tend to want to to emphasize the benefics as much as we can and to de-emphasize the malefics. Now there are, you know, like caveats to that, and there are exceptions to that, and there's ways to make the the malefics constructive and make them positive and make them so that we would use them in certain elections, either in the context of certain specific elections or even in elections in general, as long as they're well placed. Mm-hmm. But in terms of inherent sort of like tendencies, these are some of the things that will tend to gravitate towards most of the time. Yeah. Right. All right. So that sounds good. Um, in terms of angularity, are there any other things? I guess this is the point where we actually need to really introduce sect and talk about sect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. All right. So sect, it's something we've heard. I've talked about a lot on the podcast before. It's a huge component of ancient astrology. It's a huge component of Hellenistic astrology. Um, I run through tons of examples of this in the book and in my Hellenistic astrology course because it's such a useful and such a crucial interpretive factor in natal astrology. It's also very crucial and important in electional astrology as well. Mm-hmm. So the basic thing with sect is that you, in any chart, you need to first identify whether it's a day chart or a night chart. And the way to do that is simply to look and see if the sun is above the exact degrees of the ascendant descendant axis in the top half of the chart. And if that's the case, then you have a day chart. Whereas if the sun is anywhere below the exact degrees of the ascendant descendant axis, then you have a night chart. Right. So, and that's going to change basically um, the quality of both the benefics and the malefics. So, for the most part, so far, we've been talking about them as kind of like um, dichotomous benefics versus malefics, but there is actually a hierarchy and a quali- um, constructive and destructive qualities that will either be emphasized or de emphasized depending on sect. Right. And there's a whole like complicated thing that we could get into in terms of that, but the basic rule that's the most crucial and useful from a practical standpoint from our perspective for electional astrology or the the quick and dirty rule for sect is basically that it helps you to establish what the most positive planet will be in the chart and what the most challenging or negative planet will be in the chart. So generally the rule is this, generally speaking and all other factors aside, the most positive planet in a day chart is going to be Jupiter and the most negative planet in a day chart is going to be Mars. Whereas conversely, the most positive planet in a night chart is going to be Venus, and the most negative planet in a night chart is going to be Saturn. Right. And so, excuse me. So, everything we've been talking about so far, you just um, emphasize even further when we've been talking about the benefics, then we want to emphasize in any electional chart in particular the benefic according to sect. So, the best planet in the chart, whether it's Jupiter in a day chart or Venus in a night chart. And conversely, we really want to de-emphasize as much as possible by placement in the chart the malefic contrary to sect, which is going to be Saturn in a night chart or Mars in a day chart, because those are going to be, um, respectively, the most difficult um, energies in the chart. And so you just want to kind of tuck them away so that the least influential is possible. Right, exactly. So 
you want to merge this then especially with the angular planets being prominent rule mm -hmm. because that means you're going to want to focus on best case scenario making the most positive benefic in your chart angular and conversely making the most negative malefic in your chart making it as as not angular as possible like getting it away from the under all circumstances keeping the most negative planet in the chart out of the four angular houses exactly so here's an example of that hypothetical example let's say for example we've got uh, a chart where leo is rising and the sun is in aries in the ninth house so we know because the sun is in the top half of the chart that this is a day chart so then automatically we know that the most positive planet in the chart is jupiter which in our chart is in in taurus in the 10th house and the most negative planet is mars which in our hypothetical chart is in aquarius in the 7th house so this is a mixed example because we have the most positive planet in the chart in an angular house in the 10th and we also have the most negative planet in the chart in an angular house in the 7th right so i would probably tend to avoid this one mm -hmm. because it's almost not worth it putting the most positive planet and making it angular if you also have to make the most challenging planet angular at the same time. Yeah, every once in a while, like the, that's unavoidable or there aren't better charts, but usually even in those cases, there are like mitigations that make it acceptable um, compared to this chart, which there aren't really. Right. Um, let me see if I have another example. Here's a night chart. So Leo rising again, the sun in Libra in the third house. So the sun is in the bottom half of the chart, so we know it's a night chart. Um, here we have Venus in Scorpio. Venus in a night chart is the most positive planet and it's in the fourth house. So this would be relatively positive placement because the most positive planet in the chart is angular and it is the only angular planet because there's no planets otherwise in Scorpio, Aquarius, Taurus, or Leo. Mm -hmm. um, the most negative planet in the chart is Saturn, which is in Sagittarius in the fifth house, which is succedent, but at least it's not angular, so it's not as prominent as Venus. And in this chart, Venus is the mo more prominent planet, so it sort of wins out. Right. So this would be a fine chart because it's the benefic according to sect, angular, and nothing else angular. Right. All right. So that's sect. Um, sect becomes hugely important because it allows you to identify the most positive and negative planet, um, which you're then going to emphasize based on angularity, but you're also going to emphasize and it's going to come into play when you're going through the other rules with the previous two significators, with the ruler of the ascendant and with the moon because then you want to make it so that the ruler of the ascendant and the moon are as connected to and have as close of a relationship as you can get to the most positive planet in the chart. And you want to make it so that the ruler of the ascendant and the moon have um, as, as little relationship with the most negative planet in the chart as possible. Exactly. So in relationship, by relationship here, I mean, of course, there, there's different ways that planets can have relationships in the chart, but aspect or aspectual relationship is definitely the primary one. So having a close applying aspect between the ruler of the ascendant or the moon to the most positive planet in the chart would be ideal versus having um, a, a close applying hard aspect to the most negative planet in the chart from the ruler of the ascendant to the moon would be worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also rulership. So um, having um, the ruler of the ascendant or the moon being either respectively ruled by the benefic of the sect or the malefic contrary to sect would be kind of like the dichotomous opposites in terms of um, most desirable versus not acceptable. Right.
So again, we're just tying those factors back in, and you're seeing how it's becoming more complicated, but also we're getting different rules and different factors that are helping us to prioritize like what's more important and what's less important. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, cool. So that's angularity. So we're focusing on whole sign houses here. Um, however, I do want to mention that you want to use whole sign houses primarily, but then also secondarily pay attention to quadrant houses and pay attention to angularity according to quadrant houses as well, especially when in an electional chart, you really want to pay attention to when planets are getting very close to the exact degrees of the angles, like mm -hmm. the exact degree of the ascendant or the exact degree of the midheaven, the exact degree of the meridian or MC, or the point opposite to that, which is the IC, or the point opposite to the ascendant, which is the degree of the descendant, that those become sensitive points that are very um, even more prominent than the angular whole sign house is. And you want to pay close attention to those as well because they can really boost and accentuate planets in an electional chart, which can be great if it's a positive placement or a positive planet in your electional chart, but it can also be really terrible if you accidentally boost the signal of the most negative planet in the chart by putting it exactly on the degree of an angle. Yeah, for sure. So for instance, that'll sometimes be like the um, finishing touches if you find a good overall election and then you've already put say a benefic in the first house of the 10th house um, and then you just try to make sure that it's very close to the exact ascendant or the exact midheaven and then conversely um, say you have maybe jupiter ruling the ascendant but mars is in the second house or something by whole sign but if you put the degree of the ascendant very late in the first sign um, the first whole sign, then sometimes Mars, if it's very early in the next sign, say, yeah, that's actually um, a good example of what you have up right there. Um, so say Mars is in Aries in the second house, but if you had very late Pisces rising, then Mars would start to get a little bit close to the ascendant. Um, maybe not today too badly since Mars is now at 10 degrees, but say Mars was like at five degrees, like some days back. Um, you really could still have a Pisces rising chart, but Mars be getting like a little too unacceptably close to the ascendant degree itself. Right. So part of the distinction we're making here is between um it's a it's a distinction that was kind of used a little bit in the Hellenistic tradition, where some of the astrologers seem to be distinguishing between almost using whole sign houses for topics, but using quadrant houses for um, prominence or for planetary activity. Where they would say that a planet was crematistikos, which means um, uh, like busy, when a planet was close to the degree of an angle using quadrant houses. So in this way, you can kind of use whole sign houses and quadrant houses together at the same time by by partially just understanding what what role or what function each of them is having in a chart. Where the whole sign houses are primarily indicating topics, and the quadrant houses are primarily indicating planetary activity. Now, there's some overlap actually between those two, and things are a little bit more mixed up than just making that distinction, but that's a useful tool as a starting point for figuring out how, how to reconcile those two approaches to house division. Definitely. Yeah. So basically, do all the rules according to what we've said with whole sign houses, but then additionally, pay close attention um, as you're developing the election to the specific degree based um, angles. Right. So, in our electional chart today, for example, you know, we set it so that Pisces is rising, and we know then that as soon as Pisces is rising, Jupiter becomes the ruler of the ascendant. 
and Jupiter is in the 10th whole sign house, so automatically we know that Jupiter is angular by whole sign house as the ruler of the ascendant and it's well placed by sign and by whole sign house and by aspect. But then we adjusted the time to make it so that Jupiter was also right on the degree of the midheaven so that uh, the degree of the MC was at 14 degrees of Sagittarius and Jupiter itself was at 14 degrees of Sagittarius. So not only was it angular by sign, but it was also angular by degree. Mm -hmm. Right. That was our projected election. I don't know if we actually started then, but, um, but- Yeah. I mean, it was like a few minutes later. Yeah. But, um, but that's kind of what we were shooting for is not just Jupiter ruling the ascendant and placed in the 10th whole sign house, which is already um, the benefic of the sect ruling the first house and um, play, well placed in the 10th house and uh, uh, visible and angular, but also right on the degree of the midheaven, so even more prominent. Right. So it's different like layers of prominence where you know the, the primary thing, initial starting point is always the sign-based approach and then the secondary thing is always the degree-based approach. And that's true not just with the house division thing, but it's also true with aspects where we've already seen it's like you're starting with the sign-based aspects, and then you're going to the degree-based aspects, and then finally the third tier is going to the applying versus separating degree-based aspect. Mm -hmm. You get sort of a similar thing with the house division. Mm -hmm. All right. This is so so that's important in terms of angularity. The other thing that we should point out here, or another thing that's important and useful to know with respect to the degrees of the angles, is that you should not only use them to fine-tune elections, but you can also use the degrees of angles to mitigate uh, planets that are in a cadent or in a bad house. For sure. By making it so that the planet, if you if you have a planet where you can't um, avoid putting it in a bad house, one of the things you can do to help mitigate that placement is making it so that there's an aspect from the degree of that planet to the degree of one of the quadrant angles. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, that's actually a huge mitigating factor so that most of the time, if you see a planet, not just in an electional chart, but also is true in a natal chart, and I talk about this in my book, that if you see a planet that's in a, a difficult or a bad house or a challenging house, but it seems to be functioning relatively constructively, oftentimes the reason is that there's a mitigating factor where the degree of one of the angles is closely aspecting the degree of that planet in the bad house. And that's what's sort of counteracting it and allowing it to function in a way that's more constructive than it would otherwise. Definitely. And I think it's really impressive when you see that um, working out in natal charts. You can kind of, you know, like understand using it in electional charts because it can make a considerable difference if a planet is like in the sixth house, eighth house, twelfth house, but it's aspecting, say, the um, ascendant degree or the midheaven degree. Right. Um, it can make it a lot more effective. Yeah, um, exactly. And it's also true for if you can't get a planet in a bad house to aspect the exact degree of the angle, like the exact degree of the MC, then you can also try to get it to aspect an angular planet within three degrees, like especially a planet that's angular in the fourth or tenth whole sign house. Um, that can also be a significant mitigating factor if it's aspecting that planet, especially within three degrees. Mm -hmm. All right. So I don't know if I have any example charts of that, but I think that's relatively understandable, right? We, mm -hmm. we use that pretty commonly in our elections each month. So yeah. it's something you'll see us do pretty frequently because it's one of those rules that I found originally in, I think, the text of Paulus Alexandrinus from like the fourth or fifth century, but then 
I just kept seeing it come up over and over again in, in natal charts, and then eventually I kept seeing it come up over and over again in electional charts as a really useful mitigating factor so that it's become sort of like a, a standby at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So um, that's angularity. That's like our third rule. Mm -hmm. um, our fourth rule is the general significator. Yeah. And in some charts, it's more obvious than uh, some charts have a more obvious general significator than others. For instance, for weddings, I do always pay attention to Venus and trying to make sure that Venus as the general significator of like love, relationships, kind of unity, things like that, making sure that the condition is at least decent and if possible, great. Um, because, you know, the ascendant ruler, while it's kind of like the primary piece of the um, the electional chart, uh, the general significator still has something to say about the general topic you're talking about in the chart. Right. So a general significator is just like the planet that signifies, generally speaking, the thing that you're initiating. So Venus, for example, for a wedding or for a relationship, Mercury for communication. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of some other examples. If you want to start a war, then like <laughs> Mars, Mars would be your general significator. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, typically I would say I've done the most with Venus and Mercury, like mm -hmm. Mercury being like, I don't know, people like writing books or submitting things for publication. You haven't done a lot of war charts? I haven't. Okay. <laughs> Not so far. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So general significator, and this is one of the, the other rules that comes up in electional charts, you do run into an issue where it's, you know, we're starting to get to a lot of factors at this point. Mm -hmm. I think we can all agree. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of ranking them, I often personally, I know there's different astrologers that have different opinions and everybody disagrees. I tend to focus less sometimes on the general significator and more on trying to make my two particular significators well-placed, which are the ruler of the ascendant and the moon. I'll tend to place more emphasis on that oftentimes in my approach than I do on the general significator because the in in my own conception and experience, it's like the particular significator of the ruler of the ascendant is more personally connected to whatever you're initiating at that time in that specific time and in that specific location. Whereas the general significator is kind of like the same on some level for for everybody on Earth at that particular moment in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I weight it pretty similarly. I would say, um, and it depends on the specific, I guess, purpose of the election as to how important I think the general significator is. Like, I actually do put a decent bit of weight on Venus for wedding elections. Um, but um, I don't know, for other things, like I will, like for book submissions, article submissions, sometimes I will pay more attention to Mercury, even if I'm putting the most weight on the ascendant ruler. But sure. for a lot of things, I don't feel like a general significator pops out quite as strongly. Yeah. Right. Or like, yeah, like avoiding a Mercury retrograde period if you're trying to do something with like communication or travel. Right. It's just, it's like sometimes you just can't avoid certain ones though. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like you still have to choose it despite the general significator being bad. You still have to do something during that time. So that's often when you're sort of forced to focus more on the ruler of the ascendant or the moon or what have you. Mm -hmm, for sure. And I don't know if we had it in here somewhere, um, also the house of the topic of the election. Yeah. I mean, there's a few factors. Like, I wasn't sure how much we were going to get into. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like that focusing on the house is another thing. Like, if you have an elect a marriage election and focusing on the seventh house, if you have mm -hmm. a business election, focusing on the 10th house, 
if your electional chart, if financial matters are important to you, then making sure that the second house and the ruler of the second house is well placed. Mm -hmm. uh, so the second house and the ruler of the second house is well placed. If you're starting something where groups or friendships are important to you, making sure that the um, 11th house and the ruler of the 11th house are well placed and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. Right. Yeah. Are there any other things about that? Mm, no, I don't think so. I mean, basically, we're going to be spending the most time looking at everything we've talked about so far the ascendant ruler, the moon, and so forth. And then secondarily, checking the house of the topic that it's most related to and making sure that house is at least decent to positive. Yeah. And that's, that becomes important in terms of like getting a chart that matches the thing that you're trying to initiate and at least doesn't like undermine mm -hmm. uh, an, an area that's important. And so that's one of the reasons why at the very start of everything, establishing what's really important for this election it, it can be kind of crucial. Right. Because you do have to put the malefics somewhere like we were talking about earlier and so forth. So you just, while it can't be a perfect election, you don't want to put those right in the spot that signifies the actual topic you're talking about, even if otherwise our approach is um, a good positive overall chart rather than just matching the topic entirely from the chart. Right. Or even just some area that is crucial to what the person wants to accomplish mm -hmm. and knowing that that area is crucial to the election right uh is is important yeah yeah so you know fourth house like home and living situation or parents fifth house children 11th mm -hmm. house friends mm -hmm. ninth house travel and so on and so forth all the right. classic sort of significations or meanings of the houses is then being tied into part of it is like a not a gamble but a a thing of just establishing um what parts of the chart you're okay having not in good shape versus what parts of the chart you're not okay having in good shape mm -hmm. is really important because you have to place the benefics somewhere, but you also have to place the malefics somewhere. Mm -hmm. And knowing where it's okay to place the malefics is a kind of crucial precursor going into selecting any electional chart. Exactly. And it's kind of a process of elimination. Like where can you not put the malefics? You know? So um I mean it can be tricky with some particular topics can you know, some are very easily focused on one house, but some involve multiple houses kind of obviously. And so it can be hard to start getting like multiple houses um, in really good condition in addition to the ascendant ruler and the moon and everything we've talked about so far. I think if you've been listening up to this point, you would agree that that's a lot of factors to juggle and it starts to become not possible to get all of those like really in great shape. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would rank this down where we're currently putting it on our list. Yeah. Where I think it's like the the ranking of priority is like ruler of the ascendant, moon, angular planets, and then planets in or ruling houses that are connected to the topic under consideration. Right. Yeah. All right. Um. So, and and that we're talking about. You know, malefics and putting them in that house, but it also connects to like benefics and putting them in that house mm -hmm. where, you know, financial matters are really important. Then you might want to try to put the benefics in the second house for, for the thing. Or right. if friends and building friendships or having stable friendships is really important to the election, then putting the benefics in the 11th house. Or if, 
this is somehow connected to children or like having children, putting the benefics in the fifth house right. in order to promote and grow and stabilize the the topics that you want stabilized in the electional chart. Right. And that's where it becomes really helpful for either you or you working with a client to be really clear on like what is your biggest priority or one or two biggest priorities. You can't prioritize everything. Right. And, and this is also where there might be some overlap with that first consideration we were talking about earlier about the distinction between making a good chart in general versus making a chart that looks like the thing you're trying to accomplish is that here sometimes if there's a specific thing that you're trying to accomplish that actually matches one of the the 12 houses or the topics associated with them sometimes you can not just try to put the benefics in that house but you could try to put the ruler of the ascendant in that house for example mm -hmm. uh, which starts to get really tricky but yeah. for like a business chart for example having the ruler of the ascendant in the 10th house right or if you're doing like a a chart for friendship or for starting a social group or an organization putting the ruler of the ascendant in the 11th house right that's definitely doable it's it becomes a little bit more challenging especially with a short term election where you have fewer options but in an ideal world that's one of the ways where sometimes you can do you can find some overlap is by trying to make the ruler of the ascendant and put it in the house that most closely matches the topic under consideration. Right, for sure, especially if it matches one of like the best houses. So for instance, putting the ascendant ruler in the 10th versus the 4th, even though they're both angular houses, if it's a business election because the 10th is much more associated with public things out in the world rather than your private life. Right. And this is where it starts getting into some overlap with things like horary rules, where for horary questions, um, you often want to see if there's going to be an, an affirmative answer or a yes answer. You want to see the ruler of the ascendant applying to an exact aspect with the ruler of the house that matches the topic of the question. So if it's like a business question, like will I get the job, you might be looking for an applying aspect between the ruler of the ascendant and the ruler of the tenth. And if there is, then it'll be an affirmative answer. And in some instances, in electional charts, if you're really trying to match up the electional chart with the topic under consideration, that's another factor you can try to aim for is like an applying aspect between the ruler of the ascendant, which represents the person initiating the action, and the ruler of the house in question, which represents the thing that they're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's another best case scenario. Right. Yeah. So do all, all 20 of those things. Right. Just in order. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that is why we do all of the work, not all of the work, but we do a lot of the work by trying to like select a bunch of auspicious electional charts each month in the Auspicious Elections podcast and in the right. 2019 report because mm -hmm. this is something we're doing constantly and so we're often coming across charts that would be either good general charts or good charts for specific topics which we try to highlight. Right. All right, so where are we at? We we've covered all of the I think we covered all of the primary rules that we meant to cover in terms of finding a good standalone electional chart and the the core things that you're looking for in just about every chart and everything you're trying to prioritize. And this is where we come to what I usually have as like the final piece mm -hmm. um, for me. And there's different astrologers that feel different ways about this in terms of the prioritization of this piece, but for me it always comes or typically comes last. And this is the comparison with the natal chart mm -hmm. and looking in to see how the natal chart interacts with the electional chart. Because what happens is that basically the electional chart becomes like a permanent transit to your natal chart um, for whatever it is that you've initiated at that time. Mm -hmm. So it's like you've taken 
a transit that you were having that day when you started that thing. But then as long as that thing stays in your life that you initiated with that election, you, it's like you're, you're keeping a permanent tr- that permanent transit in your life from that point forward. So that's why it's then important to, and the final deciding factor for any electional chart is how does that electional chart compare to your natal chart if you were to make it a permanent transit? Right. And so you basically want to be looking for, say, um, positive aspects from benefics in the electional chart to your natal chart, or conversely, looking to avoid um, negative aspects from malefics in the electional chart to your natal chart, and particularly emphasizing, like we were talking about earlier with sect, so particularly avoiding the malefic that happens to be contrary to sect for your birth chart. So Saturn, if you were born at night, or Mars, if you were born during the day, make sure that particular planet in the electional chart does not hit your natal chart in any close way to vital pieces, like say like your ascendant or your sun or moon or things like that, your midheaven maybe. The ruler of your ascendant. Yeah, ruler of your ascendant. So I mean, um, and ideally, you know, not closely aspecting your chart in general. Um, and then conversely, it, it's pretty positive. Um, on the other hand, if the benefic of the sect for your birth chart um, in the electional chart is making good aspects to your natal chart. It is kind of more like a tiebreaker, though, I think, for us. Um, I know that you use it that way, right? Yeah. So the thing for me after doing elections for uh, a long time now, for over, what, 15 years, is that Given all these criteria that we've just outlined, and we haven't even outlined all the criteria, but we've outlined most of the core criteria, you can see how there's just like a ton of different factors that you have to take into account in order just to find good electional charts that will even be acceptable during a given time frame. And you may go through your whole time frame and only come up with like a handful of of electional charts that are either viable or like halfway decent during whatever, you know period of time you have under consideration. And that is incredibly difficult then just to find a good standalone electional chart. So as a result of that, as a matter of practicality, I usually will look at the given time frame that I have under consideration to work with, find the best electional charts that I can find during that entire time frame, and maybe come up with a list of, let's say, like five electional charts or 10 electional charts or something like that. And then at the end of that process, I will then use the natal chart as a tiebreaker, as a as a tiebreaker to narrow down the best election by then finding the electional chart out of that that five or ten possible electional charts. I'll find the one that matches the natal chart the best at that point. Uh, that where where the transits to the natal chart are the best on that day um, as the final deciding factor at that point, because that's easier for me. The other way you could do it. Um, is to start from the natal chart and identify what time frames are going to have the best overall transits or time lord periods for the natal chart during some time frame and then try to find an electional chart within that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's different astrologers that do prefer that approach. I just personally find that approach a little bit more unwieldy and difficult to deal with compared to finding the good the best electional charts. Because if you if you start from the electional chart perspective, I feel like you're able to find the best standalone elections, which will help to ensure that the venture itself will be successful and will mm-hmm. do the best as a sort of like standalone thing, then you tie that into the natal chart. Whereas if you go from the, the natal chart perspective, you're not necessarily going to find 
the best elections per se. You might find periods that are almost better for the person in terms of the transits, but you're going to end up, typically speaking, with less great electional charts. Mm -hmm, definitely. I do it the same way, and it's just a matter of prioritization. I mean, I've seen people try to do the transits first, um, but then say they're having like a great Jupiter or Venus transit to their ascendant or something, but maybe their ascendant is in a sign that doesn't particularly make Jupiter or Venus in good condition. And so, you know, you have things like that. So it just seems, it, for me, it is more cumbersome to do it that way as well. Um, I mean, there are instances where I will do it that way or have done it that way. So for example, if somebody is trying to do a major business thing where I've started off and, and I have like a huge range of time to work with, like a time that's even larger that would be too unwieldy to work with in terms of coming up with a bunch of electional mm -hmm, charts. Mm -hmm. I can't I will sometimes narrow that down by using something like the, the Hellenistic Time Lord technique, zodiacal releasing, and I'll do mm -hmm. their zodiac releasing from a lot of spirit periods for career to figure out when peak periods are occurring in their career mm -hmm. that would be positive or or active. And then I'll try to find an electional chart within that. Right. Um, it's just that usually um, the timeframes that are given to you for elections by clients tend to be more narrow than that. So mm -hmm. that it's more a matter of just trying to find the best electional charts within that time frame is the most difficult thing. So that's why you usually want to get that out of the way first. Mm -hmm, for sure. And you can kind of see as you if you watch transits in general um, over time, you can kind of see times where, um, I mean, I run into this with just the monthly elections that we do where you can see transits that would be really positive, but they're coinciding with like other transits that are really not positive. And so you can see that while that would be like a nice transient positive experience in some way for, for someone, if it's hitting your chart closely, you wouldn't necessarily want to cement the entire chart into an election because you automatically cement both. And sometimes like there's a challenging um, aspect or um, placement or something that's like, counteracting it too badly mm -hmm. to really make the transit worthwhile to cement it. Right. Um, and then also the, another complicated thing is that it, in, in some elections or a lot of elections, it's not always just like one person with one natal chart involved, but oftentimes there can be multiple people involved. Like, oh, yeah. like in a marriage, for example, right. you've got two people or um, you know, let's say they've already got a family. So like one person has a few children and yeah. the other person has a few children already and then they get married. Are you going to take into account all the children's charts as right. well as the two partners or if you have a business where you've got like two people starting the business or you have a few people starting the business you know are you paying attention to all of their natal charts and you get into these complicated things and this is one of the just additional reasons why I tend to prioritize at least for my sort of work load the electional chart first mm -hmm. yeah it can start to get too crazy as i think you know is obvious as we're talking about this um uh, so, I mean, I think it's important to note, though, I mean, as we've mentioned that, you know, no one ignores the natal chart because you hear some occasionally like arguments about that, like whether you're, you know, ignoring the natal chart by, um, you know, by doing the standalone electional chart first. And so I think it's important to note that like no one, I don't think who does an electional like ignores the natal chart completely. It's just a matter of how much you weight it. Yeah. Well, it's just a matter of Weight, but also just sequence. Like yeah, we're just weight doing and sequence. Yeah. The natal chart at the end of the sequence for right. us makes more sense versus somebody else might want to start it at the beginning. But that doesn't yeah. mean that we're not paying attention to the natal chart, which I've heard is like a mistaken 
sort of criticism of the putting out the elections every month. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that somebody made at one point. Right. And that's kind of why I was trying to note that because sometimes you don't see what's going on behind the scenes. You just see like the foot, the sort of cliffs notes of like, oh, there's elections out there that are freestanding and they're not attached to a natal chart. So just right. important to to kind of mention the entire process, even if we're not doing that all publicly. Yeah. Or just people making stupid criticism. Sure. <laughs> All right. So, comparison with the natal chart as the final tiebreaker and final deciding factor. Um, you already mentioned some of the things we'd pay attention to using sect to identify in the natal chart what the most positive and negative planet is, and that you would tend to emphasize the most positive planet in terms of transits and avoid close transits to the most negative planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking about things like hitting the, the degrees of the angles, going through the first house. Hitting the ruler of the ascendant, mm-hmm. hitting the luminaries, um, maybe going through the house the, of the topic, right? So if the person's like getting married, maybe you wouldn't want to put um, Mars transiting through their seventh house in a day chart, or mm-hmm. I mean, I also want to say like Saturn transiting through the seventh house in a night chart, but then that's like a three, that's a long that's a three transit. year long transit, yeah. so you run into an issue there of. This other question that comes up sometimes of what is the role of the electional astrologer and um, is it your business to to like how much should you try and influence or change the client's mind versus how much is it your job to just find the best chart given what you have available? Mm-hmm. And I often tend to I, I, there's astrologers that have different opinions on that. I tend to side on the side of just you've been given a time frame. And you need to find the best out of what you can in that time frame. And it's not your job otherwise to like, I don't know, change the person's mind or say that they can't do that or say that this is going to be terrible or something like that. You're just trying to mitigate it and and alter things enough slightly to give them a better chance or to put them on a better trajectory than they would have if there was no interference whatsoever. Definitely. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, I don't feel like it's the election astrologer's role, particularly if you're not also seeing them as like for consultations for their natal chart. Because oftentimes, sometimes people come for both, but much more often it's one or the other. And so, um, you know, if someone who is like not trying to talk to you about their natal chart or whether they should or should not do something, typically when, when people come for elections, they've already decided to do something. And so they just want to know when is the best time to do that thing. So usually it's like not really your role to be, I don't think anyway, to be like, mm, I don't know if you should marry that person, <laughs> you know, that feels like interfering too much. You know, you're just kind of trying to help them as much as possible. Uh, yeah. Yeah. When I have heard astrologers do that, and I feel like that is overstepping. I don't hear a lot of astrologers do that. But I've heard of an astrologer who did elections who did that. And I feel like that is overstepping the boundaries of the astrologer of what's appropriate versus not appropriate. And I do think for the most part, the, the role of the electional astrologer is just to help as much as you can within the boundaries of what's available to you. And you're not going to be able to completely change everything or you're not going to be able to help them avert everything, mm-hmm. but you're just trying to help them to a maximize their potential and b and maximize the positive things and to b mitigate the challenging or the negative things. Right. And I think that does come back to um setting clear expectations again to make sure that, you know, anyone you're doing an election for understands that you can't necessarily make whatever it is go perfectly for them mm-hmm. and that they still have their natal chart, you know, playing out and things like that. 
but that you're just trying to help give it a boost. Um, because sometimes you could do an election, and I think this has happened to me once or twice, where you're doing an election for something that, you know, you can make it, you know, as good as possible, but maybe that topic in their chart is just challenging, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe the topic of relationships is challenging. Maybe the topic of finance is challenging. Maybe mm-hmm. topic of children is challenging, like even having or conceiving children. Mm. Um, you know, and there's different levels of that, even in a natal chart. There's right. like worst case scenario of just like um, repeatedly in the chart, it just says this is not happening and there's no mitigations and it's very hard to get around that versus there can be some charts where it shows an area of challenge and difficulty, but it's like an area of surmountable challenges so that with great effort, the person is able to overcome it and eventually achieve success or achieve what they want in that area of their life. Mm-hmm. And that can be an instance where electional astrology can be helpful or can be part of that process. Right. Um, but yeah, it really varies. Yeah. Or if you have some sort of timing thing going on that's like a long timing thing that you're not going to wait 10 years for or something. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. So other natal stuff. I mean, there's other stuff that has to do with like time lords, like what is the annual perfected, like the ruler of the year? What are the person's zodiac releasing periods and other things like that? But I think that's all outside of the scope of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, but- there are things that we might look at. Uh, um, Along with these thirty other things now, um, yeah. In terms of the natal chart, and in yeah. terms of like what's active, right, in that person's chart, and what factors you might take into account once you start bringing the natal chart into play. Exactly. Okay. Um, are there any other major things that we needed to mention in terms of the natal chart before we wrap that up? Not that I can think of. Okay. Well, we're only at two hours and forty minutes. So. Oh, geez. <laughs> okay. All right. So normally, at this point, we were going to transition into philosophical views about the difference elections can mm-hmm. make, but we've kind of already covered a lot yeah. of that in terms of giving you an edge, um, not fully being able to change your fate, but help hoping and helping in some small ways. Mm-hmm. We were kind of just reiterating some of that. Um, sometimes. Yeah, and then just that sometimes it helps just knowing what the outcome will be when you initiate the action, even if you're not able to completely change. And I think that's that's one of the most interesting things to me about reading some of the Hellenistic electional stuff is the the term election just means choice. Like when we elect like a president or something, it's we we choose that candidate over another, and that's what election means is just choice. Um, and originally in the Hellenistic tradition, that, that term became more common in the medieval period when, they, when astrologers came to talk about elections. But initially in the Hellenistic tradition, they would just talk about inceptions and both electional and inceptional astrology fell under the same umbrella. And it's really interesting that a lot of the rules in the Hellenistic tradition are almost geared, not always just towards like picking a favorable outcome, but just knowing that when you make a choice to start something at this time, these are going to be the likely outcomes of that choice. And that becomes like part of the interesting mystique of inceptional and electional astrology is sometimes not always trying to control the outcome, but just starting to become more aware of the ramifications of making decisions and making choices and initiating things at specific moments in time and starting to learn how to anticipate through astrology what the results of your action will be um, depending on when you're starting it. Mm-hmm, definitely. I mean, I think it's actually a lot more interesting to learn electional just to kind of watch astrology in action kind of in a more complex way. Um, 
whether or not you use it for a lot of like specific elections. You can kind of start watching the principles play out all of the time. Yeah, definitely. Um, just by again casting charts for when you start initiating things, for when important things happen, for when you meet people, for mm -hmm. when you whatever start a relationship or a job or or mm -hmm. what have you, and just starting to learn from looking at those charts and seeing what the outcome or what the result is based on that chart. Right. Or just paying attention to the rising sign throughout the day, as you mentioned early on during the podcast, and just watching what that means for the entire chart and how things go that you do, even incidental things during those times. Right. Or watching what when planets hit angles, like the degree of the ascendant or midheaven or descendant or IC, and like seeing sometimes the meaning of that planet becoming really prominent at mm -hmm. that point during your day. Yeah, definitely. All right, so um, we got some questions from some people on Twitter last mm -hmm. night when I said I we were going to record this episode, and so I was like, "Let me know if you have any questions." Let's like run through and bang out a few of those questions really quickly okay. to see if there's any that we haven't already answered, just incidentally during the course of this, and okay. then we'll wrap this up. All right. All right. So, um, Alan Salmi at at Astro Aspects on Twitter says, "For elections, how do you prioritize the power?" Of electing by planetary hour, upcoming lunar aspect, or finding an electional chart in tune with your natal. And I think we've addressed that a lot in terms of what we do, which is the standalone chart, which is more of the principles of the ascendant ruler, the upcoming lunar aspects, and all of those are the other pieces. And then natal. I don't think you use planetary hours, do you? Yeah, I mean, planetary hours is something. Um, and this is again, this is one of those ones that's a little bit more like up for different practitioners emphasizing different things. I don't really emphasize planetary day or hour rulers much in my practice, um, partially because I was always a little bit skeptical about the astronomical connection of, of how did that start, of like what day did that start on, and how do we know that that has any sort of astronomical rather than just purely. I don't know, numerological or symbolic connection with reality. But I know there's other practitioners that do electional astrology, especially uh, that also do the crossover with planetary magic, mm -hmm. uh, like Austin Kopic, for example, that do put a lot of emphasis on planetary day and planetary hour rulers. Mm -hmm. So that's something I will leave up to other people. But for us, we would certainly say upcoming lunar aspect would be first, and then finding the electional chart and tune with your natal would be second. Right. Uh, next one. Uh, at which Dr. Alex says, uh, for starting a business, do we plan based on a good placement for the second and eighth? So yeah, for a business, if you want it to be good for financial matters, you'd probably focus on the second as being well situated. The eighth would be more if it was like a business partnership of you with another person, or if the business involved other people's money in some way, in a in a really significant way. Right. I think that gets into like the issue of like trying to get multiple houses all be good at once. Yeah, um, and how tricky that becomes just right. when your starting point is still always, even for a business, is still the ruler of the ascendant and the moon. Right. And then after that, do what you can with the other houses. Exactly. All right. Um, T. Orville at This Is Orville says How do you prioritize the disposition of the natural ruler of the topic of the election, Venus in a marriage, Mercury in a business versus other considerations? Do you do synastry of the election and the person using it? So we covered yeah. both of those. Mm -hmm. I was just okay. <laughs> we did. <laughs> um, Antares at astral underscore tor says, "I'm new to this topic, but what are some of the key differences between horary astrology and electional astrology, if any?" Um, 
Well, so horary is basically, you're using a lot of the same principles, but horary is um, asking a specific question and then casting a chart for when the astrologer received and understood that question to answer that specific question versus electional, as we've been talking about, is um, choosing a chart proactively to make it go as well as possible. So it's kind of coming at it at um, different ends in terms of the timeline. Yeah. And the sort of historical connection with them is weird because originally the early tradition, like in Dorotheus, it's almost largely just electional. And then eventually horary develops by the medieval period. And then in the eighth century, we see the first full surviving works on, on horary astrology don't show up until like the late eighth and early ninth century with authors like Saula bin Bisher and Masha Allah. Um, and we can see that they were taking some of Dorotheus's rules for elections and started applying them to questions as they were starting to develop the branch of horary. But then as the centuries went on, horary sort of started to develop its own methodology that was focused much more on this dynamic um, looking at horary charts and focusing on applying versus separating aspects, whereas the earlier, earlier electional tradition had been much more about static placements like what planets are angular. Um, what is the ruler of the ascendant doing, or what is the moon doing, and what are they applying to, but not necessarily focused on looking at their perfection with a specific house per se, which became much more of the focus in horary astrology. And in later traditions, um, horary and electional started having much more overlap, and the rules became much more interchangeable, especially by the time of the Renaissance tradition. But you see some interesting differences with them earlier on. But in terms of focus, yeah, you're yeah. picking a chart to start something with electional astrology and with horary, you're trying to answer what is usually a single specific question by looking at especially the perfection of the rulers of the houses and whether they perfect or not. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so we've answered the next one, I think. Okay. So Arthur asks um, on Twitter at Lip and Bone. How do you draw the line between a downside and a deal breaker? Yeah, and I think we've addressed that a little bit. So basically, all the major foundational pieces we've talked about um, have to be at least decent to good in order for you to like want to use it uh, deliberately as an election. And so some of the deal breaks, deal breakers we'd mentioned were, for instance, like putting the malefic contrary to sect, like in an angular house or something like that. Um, a downside, I'm trying to think of like a downside that's not a deal breaker. Like maybe like the next I've occasionally used like the next applying aspect is like a trine to a malefic, but then it like quickly goes on to like a really good aspect with a benefic or something. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard. Most of the deal breakers though involve the most negative planet in the chart and just um, different ways of that being prominent, like right. putting the most negative planet in the chart in an angular house for us is is a deal breaker. Whereas putting the malefic that is not the most negative planet according to sect in an angular house would not necessarily be a deal breaker. It wouldn't be ideal, but um, so the the malefic that is of the sect in favor, so that would be Saturn in a day chart or Mars in a night chart tend to be much more constructive and much less negative. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, because those planets are more constructive based on sect, we would be um, more willing to entertain having one of those planets be angular or in one of the angular houses and prominent because they're not as problematic. Whereas 
if the malefic is contrary to the sect and is the most negative planet in the chart, then that's much more going to be much more difficult to deal with and much more difficult as an ongoing thing in the electional chart. So that becomes more of a deal breaker. For sure. So most of the things like that are, are like that, things that have to deal with the most negative planet in the chart and whether it is actually the most negative planet in the chart or whether it's mitigated significantly in some way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sect can be a mitigation, reception as a mitigation, configuration if a planet's in a bad house, being configured to the degree of the MC is a mitigation that can make that okay. Mm -hmm. Um I did an episode with Michael Ofek at one point on the Astrology Podcast. I'm not sure what episode it was, but it's on um, like mitigations in traditional astrology. So go back and search for that episode on the podcast website, and you'll see a great discussion of different mitigations. Mm -hmm. Did you want to do just one or two more quick ones? Do you know which ones? Um, well, I think um, so, um, so. There's a the next you, one. Yeah. Yeah. So at old school astro says, uh, "What's your view on electing for someone who doesn't know their birth time?" How much of a risk do you think that poses, or is any electional better than none? I definitely yeah. think that any electional is clearly better than none. Yeah, you, you run into some possible risks if you don't know the birth time, but if it's a choice between like an electional chart versus no electional chart, because if you have an electional chart for a specific day, you know for the most part what transits that person is having to virtually all of their um, planets at that time. It's right. true that. If you don't know the birth time, you could unknowingly put a malefic planet on an angle. Right. But the fact, which is a potential drawback, but the fact that you could otherwise, you know, pick a date where they didn't have the malefics closely aspecting any other personal planets, which you're going to know, you know, with a birth time or without, mm -hmm. um, I think that that ends up weighing in favor of doing the election versus not doing it just because you don't have the birth time. No, I agree. I mean, and you do have the risk because of the angles, but other than that, I mean, if you do an election, it's probably going to be more likely than any average random time you're going to do that same action to have like a good, you know, applying aspect from the moon to a benefic or something like that. Like that's not likely to happen randomly otherwise. Yeah, and I mean that's really simple electional astrology. That I think everybody can start doing today. Yeah, is just pay attention to the moon and what it what the next planet it's applying to through a major aspect, and start paying attention to that because you can do that every day. Just paying attention to what is the moon separating from and what is the next exact aspect that it's applying to within the next thirteen degrees. Mm -hmm. And that's a really simple electional astrology that you can sort of start to use every day. Definitely. All right. Oh yeah, that was a good one. He also, same guy at Old School Astro asked, how do you deal with criticism of your elections from other astrologers? Elections are never perfect. There's always a downside and astrologers always seem to hone in on the downside. It makes me reluctant to share electional charts. So this is an issue because different astrologers and different traditions of astrology will emphasize different things. And as a result of that, it can be difficult for astrologers who come from different traditions to judge each other's electional charts because you're going to be looking at or prioritizing different things depending on what tradition you come from. Mm -hmm. And that's tricky. There's not really any way to get around it. Um, I think that's why it's important from my perspective to be somewhat respectful of other approaches to electional astrology and other uh, astrologers' approaches and not to be too harsh because there's not really any way to get around that. There's just going to be different approaches. And even within a tradition, different astrologers are going to, based on their experience, 
are going to grow to emphasize different factors more or less. Definitely. Just th- based on things that have like panned out well versus things that have not panned out well for them in their their subjective experience. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, those two factors, you know, can make a difference in what you would choose versus what another astrologer would choose, but ultimately, it's not necessarily important that another astrologer likes your electional chart or not unless you're participating in a joint endeavor. Um, then it can get tricky if you have more than one astrologer like participating in something where you both want to do the election and like use your prioritize your rules. But um, other than that, I mean, I would just say, you know, it's like anything else within your work spheres, just kind of like don't let it bother you too much because like ultimately everyone does something a little bit differently, even if you're using a lot of the same rules. Yeah. And the things that are deal breakers for one astrologer may not be deal breakers for another. Yeah. And, um, the other thing, the really crucial thing actually it's worth mentioning here is when you're looking at somebody else's electional chart, you don't usually know what the time frame mm-hmm. was that they had to work that the astrologer had to work with and what the restrictions were. For sure. And it's easy to like, you know, what is it like Sunday morning quarterback mm-hmm. or you know, backseat driver um right. calling out, you know, the shots when you're not the one that's working with the actual restriction and and sees all of the possibilities laid out, laid out in front of you and then just like does the best that you can to work with what was available um that's one of the problems with that approach of like criticizing other, other astrologers elections is that you don't usually know what the actual restrictions were that they were working with totally yeah so you you as the astrologer kind of have to it's just like on you to rein that in on your on yourself when looking at other elections. You can't really control someone doing that or not doing that for you. But um, everyone should just know that there's always restrictions, and so to keep that in mind because you know that that's what you're working with when you're doing elections for yourself or for clients, and so that's what everyone's working with. And it's easy to see the downsides um, immediately when you're not going through all of the possibilities yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think the more healthy and constructive approach is just to look at different astrologers' elections and just see what they're going for and just right. say, oh, okay, I see based on this approach that you were probably going for this. Exactly. And this is the thing that you were emphasizing, or like, that's interesting that you chose to emphasize this, whereas I might have emphasized this other thing, or I might have put this planet more close to an angle versus this mm-hmm. other planet that you chose to. But I would instead. Instead of using it as a focus of critique, just use it as like an educational moment to see how different astrologers focus on different things and if there's anything you can gain or learn from that. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I think the astrologers that spend a lot of time, too much time, like criticizing other astrologers' approaches are not typically ones to be envied in the first place. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I wouldn't worry too much about them if you're the subject of that, that criticism. Right. All right. I think we've honestly addressed a lot of the rest of these here. Yeah, I mean, Matthew Williams asked with whole sign houses, how do the angles come into play? Um, we've definitely emphasized, we've talked about that just in terms of you're, you're starting with the whole sign as the basis, but then you're adjusting the time, especially. So many of our elections are focused on the rising sign, and that's actually worth mentioning as a really crucial piece. That typically for us, the entire time window. Even though we'll give a specific time for our elections, like in the electional time that we focus on each month, where we'll give a specific time, like on Tuesday the 28th at exactly 4.59 p.m., we'll say this is the best electional chart. 
really the the time window oftentimes will open as soon as the ascendant moves into that rising sign right. and the time window will close an hour or two later as soon as the ascendant leaves that rising sign but the most optimal moment within that rising sign is the specific time we gave usually because we'll then adjust the time so that the degree of an angle is doing something specific like conjoin mm -hmm. conjoining a planet or aspecting a planet exactly right yeah, but generally much of the rising sign, if not all of the rising sign, is usable because that's the main starting point for what we were going for. Right. The only exceptions to that is sometimes if there's an applying aspect by like a swift moving planet that completes or or if a planet changes signs or something within that time frame, um, that could be more sensitive to a time change within that rising sign and you want to pay attention to that, but that's not that frequent. Right. Okay. Um, can you have a good election with a malefic ruled house in the first? And this I should mention. The, so this is by at Jack E. Coos, who was actually the designer and illustrator of the background for the planetary alignments calendar this year. Yeah, and I think that's what we were going for when we were talking more vaguely earlier about that you can make, like, say, the malefic. Um, of the sect that's the more constructive malefic rather than the more destructive malefic, um, ruling the ascendant in certain instances if it's really well placed by sign, um, if it's being helped by the benefics, if it has something like mutual reception or something like that. So there are ways to make it um, like acceptable as the ascendant ruler. I don't often make the malefics the ascendant ruler, but once in a while I've used like Saturn in a day chart if it's in its own sign or things like that. Yeah, or, I mean, um, you, you can absolutely use the yeah. malefic as the ascendant. Uh, malefic as an ascendant ruler, you just have to make sure it's well placed. Yeah, and th that it's the appropriate malefic, not the malefic country to sect. Yeah, so you want to make sure it's well placed by sect, and by sign, and by house. And if you can do those three, th and ideally also by aspect, but if you can do those three things, then it's fine to use the malefic. And there's many great elections that do. Mm -hmm. And we found some later this year, for example, in our electional report where we make Saturn the ruler of the ascendant. Um, we put it in the first house in Capricorn in its own sign in a day chart with Jupiter uh, applying to like a conjunction with it. And mm -hmm. it's a great Saturn election. Right, exactly. Uh, you, and you can do the same with Mars sometimes if you do like a night chart with Mars and Scorpio in the first house or like a night chart with Mars and Aries in the first house. Exactly. Yeah, you just have to make it as constructive as possible since you're still trying to do something constructive with that malefic. Yeah, and but if you do that, then you'll get the constructive significations from the malefic coming out. And that's why even traditional astrologers acknowledge that the malefic planets are not always malefic as long as they're well situated in a chart, mm -hmm. in which case they can be perfectly constructive. Right. All right. Um, we've already focused on that question. Yeah, I think we focused on just about everything that, mm -hmm. for the most part, we needed to focus on. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody who who submitted questions. Um, if we didn't get to yours, just post it in the comment section below, or if you still have any questions, just post it either on the video version for this in the comment section below below the YouTube video, or um, in the comment sec section below this episode on the astrologypodcast.com website. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So um, to receive any elections that we've already selected, if you don't want to go through this whole process yourself, we do have the 2019 year ahead forecast report that we put together um, for the first time this year that highlights like the best election every single month for the rest of the calendar year. Yeah, so this is our first time doing this. And over the past, since 2012, we've been doing a monthly report where we go through and we highlight 
the four best electional charts that we can find each month. Uh, and initially, we were doing that for the Mountain Astrologer magazine, and now we do it for our private patron-only, uh, pa- patron-supported podcast for those that are signed up in the five and ten dollar tiers through our page on Patreon, which you can find out more information about at theastrologypodcast.com/slash-subscribe. And in that, we highlight, we look at the month ahead. We always release it at the end of each month, and it's like a forty-five minute podcast episode, just like this one. And we just highlight, we go through and we look at the four best standalone electional charts that we can find during the next four weeks. So we've been doing that for years, and it's pretty popular and pretty successful at this point. And part of this episode was just we've been meaning to do an episode to educate people more about not just how we find those electional charts, but also what to do with them and mm-hmm. how to use them once you do have them. Right. So basically at this point you should understand that when we give you one of those four electional charts all you have to do is take the electional chart that we found for you and then set it for your location the city that you're in and roughly the same time and adjust the chart until it matches the chart with the degree of the ascendant that we have and then you'll basically have a very similar electional chart to the one that we found mm-hmm. So we give away one of those for free each month on the monthly forecast episodes with Austin and Kelly, right. and then we do three or four more each month through the Auspicious Elections podcast. So we've been doing that for years, and this year we always get people who are asking for more long-term elections um, for you know what about six months out or 12 months out or what have you, could you give us an election for that? And since that's not really how you know the Auspicious Elections podcast is just monthly and it's not supposed to be like that. Um, this year we decided to create an entire year ahead report for 2019 where we went through all 12 months of 2019 and we picked out one of the best and most auspicious electional charts, just standalone electional charts that we could find for each month. So it's like a what is it? It's like a two hour, hour and a half, two hour recording just like this one, where we go through and we show each electional chart for each month, like January, February, March, April. We explain what the positive things are about the chart and why we liked it. <clears throat> we talk about the general electional weather for that part of the year. And then we also not just do a video and an audio version of that sort of podcast discussion, but we also have a written version that summarizes everything for each electional chart in each month. Mm-hmm. So, so far, it's been the response has been really great so far, and a mm-hmm. lot of people seem to be enjoying it. Um, I'm sure this episode of the podcast, of the astrology podcast, will be around for a long time. So if there's people listening to this in the future, um, we'll probably, hopefully, if things go well, have done one for 2020, mm-hmm. 2021, and, and who knows how far into the future. Right. So I'll put a link to that in the description page for this episode on the astrologypodcast.com slash website. So you'll be able to find a link to it there if you want to get that report. Um, mm-hmm. Other than that, what else do we offer? Other resources. I so mentioned- for learning. Yeah. So for learning, for those that want to study electional astrology more, I already mentioned uh, Ben Dykes's translation of Dorotheus of Sidon, uh, titled Carmen Astrologicum. I did an interview with Ben. If you want to learn more about this book when it came out, I forget what episode of the podcast is, but just search for Dorotheus on the Astrology Podcast website and you'll find it. Otherwise, you can order the book on Amazon or on bendykes.com. So that's for this is the earliest text on electional astrology, and it's the most influential text on electional astrology ever from the first century. And I'd recommend checking it out. Uh, ben has another translation, and this is actually the first interview I ever did on the Astrology Podcast. It was with Ben on episode two of the Astrology Podcast when this this book came out, titled "Choices and Inceptions: uh, Traditional Electional Astrology." So 
uh, episode two of the Astrology Podcast, and this is a compilation of some medieval astrological works on electional astrology. So this is the other book I would recommend besides Dorotheus if you want to get into electional astrology. Um, one of the things that you'll see when you read this book is a lot of the rules are actually derived from Dorotheus and are kind of like adaptations of Dorotheus's rules. So some of them become a little bit redundant if you've already read Dorotheus, but you can also see some interesting ways that the practice of electional astrology grew and developed by the medieval tradition as well. Mm -hmm. um, so other than that, in terms of other resources, um, I have a lecture on my website on chrisbrennanastrologer.com that's like a 75-minute intro to electional astrology. It's more technique and practically oriented, and then we actually took a lot of the slides from that lecture and integrated into them into this one, so it's a little bit redundant at this point. But if people want like a concise, practical 75-minute lecture on tips and techniques for electional astrology, you can get that from my website at chrisbrennanastrologer.com, where I also teach a full online course on electional astrology that has uh, many hours of lectures, and it also has an entire sort of back catalog of episodes of the, the Auspicious Elections podcast that shows us going through different months and applying these principles and then picking out different electional charts. Um, so it doesn't just do the instructional thing, but it also shows a bunch of our electional charts from the past. Um, that are just available to students of that course. Mm -hmm. So you can find out more information about that course, uh, which is called just the Electional Astrology Course at theastrologyschool.com. Mm -hmm. And you've got a lecture on, on Electional Astrology, right? Yeah, I have an Electional Lecture from this past UAC, UAC 2018, um, that hopefully I'll get up on my website soon. Um, and similarly to what you just said, you know, it does overlap some of what we've talked about today, but has many more slides and kind of is like, you know, a quick all the way through of like step by step everything you do. Right. Yeah. Cool. So people can find out more information about that at lisashime.com. Yes. Awesome. All right. And then of course, just the monthly auspicious election. If you don't want to, you know, put all the time that we're constantly putting into it to finding all of these and applying these rules, then you can take advantage of our auspicious elections podcast each month by becoming a Patreon, a patron through our page on patreon.com. And then you'll get the four electional charts that we outline each month. Mm -hmm. All right, that's it. I think that's we did it. it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we finally did our intro to electional astrology episode. Uh, this has been a long time in coming. Thank you for for joining me today. Yeah, I'm really glad that we were course. able to do this together. And I hope people uh, like it and get lots of use out of it. And it starts a lot of astrologers on that path to electional astrology because it seems. I mean, you did it at one point and i'm sure it seems daunting at first but as a matter of like practicing and doing it over and over again in repetition eventually it's something that becomes second hand right definitely yeah it's really just practice and kind of absorbing the principles over time and like trial and error and seeing what works and what doesn't and then continuing on from there right yeah definitely and all right well uh thanks a lot for doing this with me high five for yes. making it through <laughs> all right uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks to all the patrons who support the podcast each month. Uh, without you, we wouldn't be able to do this, so you really make this all possible. Um, and yeah, I hope everyone gets some good good uh, elections in over the coming year and has much success, and hopefully some of the people that listen to this episode will also go on to do some major historical elections like founding cities and picking coronation charts <laughs> and maybe electing good uh, times to brush their teeth or something like that. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or 
But uh, let us know in the future uh, if you have any good examples of electional charts and yeah. other things like that. And uh, I think that's it. Yeah. So thanks so much for listening. Um, we'd love to see um, electional charts that you do or questions that you have. Send them in. And uh, otherwise, yeah, good luck in um, your electional journey. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we will see you again next time.